All right, guys. So my name is Michael. Um, this is going to be episode one in a series that Joel and I are doing. We're going to call it Conversations with Untapped Growth. And so today we got Svetsky, Moist Turtle, and Faith Carpenter here. And Patrick is on stage too. If you want to stay on stage, uh, Patrick, you're more than welcome. Um, and we'll be opening up the conversation to people in the audience a little later. So if you want to stick around and join us for some of the conversation, that'd be great. We'd love to have you. Um, today we're going to be discussing the relationship between beauty in art and architecture and how that's affected by the type of society humans organize themselves around. Moist Turtle is actually going to give an introduction to that, but right now I want to get into what Joel and I are trying to do here with the series. So the goal is to delve into ideas and topics and really extract the meaning, purpose, and value they have in our lives. I think, speaking for myself, um, kind of the motions of modern day life I have, and I feel like many of us have forgotten uh, what it is to be human or have taken it for granted, and in a lot of ways become disconnected from our spiritual nature. And speaking for myself, I'm in the process of learning a lot of fundamental truths. And sometimes I find myself having conversations with Joel and yeah, uh, I think we, we came to the idea that maybe we should open it up to a public audience. And so the other day we had the Twitter spaces and it was in reaction to Vitalik's um, suge suggestion that we uh, develop synthetic wombs with his conversation with Elon Musk and a, a couple other VC guys. And Joel wanted to just talk about why they're dumb. And I think it seems obvious and intuitive to any normal person, but we wanted to go ahead and articulate just why it is that they're dumb. And in the process of exploring that question, I think it made everyone in that Twitter spaces much more aware of their humanity. We learned about the connection between mother and child. Um, it was a beautiful synergistic conversation. Um, we had a doctor chime in and you know he, he explained the role that biology plays in the birthing process. We learned about the transfer of cellular information from mother to child, the role the umbilical cord plays and the placenta. Um, and we had a couple fathers even chime in and talk about just the beauty of being there while their wife gave birth to um, their son or daughter. And I think we got a lot of good feedback from that conversation. And I think everyone came away with a profound spiritual appreciation for childbirth and the connection between mother and father. And I was really surprised, um, yeah, just how, just how much I got out of it. And I think we wanna to try to replicate those conversations. So whenever the opportunity arises, I think that's when Joel and I are going to have these conversations. So I'll pass it over to Joel if you wanna add anything to that and then we'll uh, go to Moist. No, I just thought it was really awesome. I mean, the conversations you and I tend to have revolve around like the scientific analytical understanding and where that collides with spiritual realities of what makes us human and kind of the beauty of being itself. And that happened in that conversation about synthetic wounds where we talked about cellular memory and some of those crazy stories of heart transplants and memories transferring between bodies with the actual organs and like 
how that process of the spiritual reality of conception carries over into like discovery of true being an authentic self. And that's what I want a lot of our conversations to focus around is this unfolding of where does this hunger for being our real true selves in this world collide with all these topics of the day that are coming to the surface. Um, looks like everybody's here. So let's just jump in whatever you're ready, Michael. All right, Moist, you want to give an introduction to what we're talking about today? Yeah, I can do that. Um, so basically, uh, today we're going to kind of cover um, democracy, uh, democracy versus uh, monarchies, in a sense. Uh, I just kind of noticed uh, over the years that uh, when you look at, I mean, I guess there is an element of bias to it, but when you look at like art, architecture, um, you know, things like the Industrial Revolution, almost all of it has taken place under a, uh, you know, like a, like a monarchy, arist excuse me, aristocracy or something to that effect. And so, you know, I, I along with all you guys, just wanted to kind of dig into that further. So um, all I was going to really do here is just kind of set the stage, um, kind of look at just a couple historic um, instances of, or kingdoms, I should say. Is it me or did we just lose Moist? I think we, we lost Moist. Him. His service has been coming in and out. He should get yeah, right back okay. on. It happened a second ago too. Good He's got some really good yeah. historical context he wants to add, so I would love to make sure we wait to let him speak. He's been doing yeah, a little okay. bit of research on the actual history and data here, which would give us some good context. Cool. I, if I, it I'm, takes I'm just people, to, we'll just jump in. I'm just here to beat up on statists. That's all. <laughs> I, I'm okay. here for that. What about non-statist <laughs> Democrats? Am I in trouble? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> Maybe we'll find out, but uh, Moist yeah, may be back with us. All good. Moist, over to you. Sorry about that. I just keep getting I uh, just keep getting dropped. You guys, you guys can hear me okay? Yep. 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 Yeah, yep. we're good. Go for it. All right, bro. great. So really, I just wanted to do a quick uh, kind of uh, how to put it into words. Uh, just go over some of the like, uh, you know, like Greece, Rome, the Byzantine Empire. Just really quickly touch on some of those. Uh, some of the key uh, kingdoms that have existed throughout time, uh, kind of from ancient times to, you know, like 17th to 19th century, and just, you know, touch on some of the uh, uh, facets, you know, the, the fact that they were indeed kingdoms and uh, how, you know, what we associate, when we associate great art with a time period or a culture, you know, these are the ones that tend to come to mind. So, I actually might get some pushback on Greece and Rome because uh, specifically the Roman Republic, just because they're considered to be uh, kind of like democracies or whatever. So in practice, that's not really true. Both of them were, yes, they had some, like, you know, the Rome, Romans had a Senate and, uh, you know, they had consuls and so forth, but only aristocratic families were able to even participate in that process. So the same is true with the Greeks. And uh, so I thought it was kind of important to uh, look at that. I, I, I would lump them more in with the monarchies. And, uh, you know, when it comes to 
Totally. What's that? I was just saying totally. totally okay. 100% yeah. Point. And so I'm going to include them in this list. And so, you know, when you look at Greece, uh, Greece was kind of the um, one of the first to do like portrait paintings, uh, you know, uh, murals, you know, sculpture. Man, that's a pain. We need to make sure he has Wi-Fi next time if he comes on. <laughs> yeah, he was just getting into some good stuff too. So, um, who we'll wants see to it. channel the inner moist and finish his sentence? So, with Greece, you seem like you know the background there, Svetsky. Get me up to speed on that detail a little bit while we're waiting for him, because I I understand early it was kind of like that with the aristocracy. But as it devolved more heavily into a mob-ruled democracy is when a lot of this higher time preference kicked in, correct? No, really. I mean, they, they never really – those regions um, were always monarchical in nature. So, like, whether it was, you know, the sort of the, the – I mean, the, the Greek regions that got a little bit too democratic, like the Athenians and stuff like that, sort of started to um, suffer from what I call the um, – the tyranny of the incompetent. So it's kind of like, you know, th th things start to devolve when you give people with no skin in the game um, a voice or a vote, right? And, and and that's the biggest fundamental problem with democracy is that you have people who don't have, um, you know, any property really um, have the same say as those uh, with property. And when, when I talk about say, it's like, you know, uh, a vote is such a fucking dumb idea because it's, um, like an economic vote for you, for yourself is like, where, like if I buy, um, you know, beef instead of fucking, uh, you know, beyond burgers, right? Like, so, so I do that and, and it doesn't impact anyone else. It's just me, but a vote uh, in a group um, imposes your will uh, onto someone else. And that might work, you know, to, to a small degree, but as the population, as the size gets a little bit larger, um, it starts to break down because then, you know, you have uh, the imposition of will across so many people. And then, you know, you, you start to move into, you start to move away from the economic side of the spectrum into the political side of the spectrum. And then the game starts to become, you know, rallying people together and, you know, fucking all this sort of other crap, right? So, so it starts to devolve very quickly. Now, with those sort of, you know, the, 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 the ancients, there was always a, a monarchic uh, element to it. There was always, um, you know, royal families, kings and queens and all this sort of stuff. And and where they emerged from, it wasn't just some, um, you know, like in, endowment by, you know, someone who, you know, took a throne. It was, it was generally like the, the original kings emerged from tribes of humans who basically were fighting over territory and property and the bravest, most intelligent, most, um, you know, most, uh, you know, valorous individual generally became the one who uh, became king, you know, became general and sort of, sort of rise up through the ranks. Um, and in doing so uh, was the, the kind of um, the, the individual or the, the member of, um, of a family uh, who was a large-scale private property owner um, and wanted as 
all private property owners want the best for the property that they um, that they ruled over. Now, you know, the larger those sort of get, you know, th this is the problem with empires and stuff like that. The more expensive they become to manage um, and the further the reach and the more rent seeking that's required and all that sort of stuff. But that sort of starts to come later on as uh, things fall apart. Like, you know, even private property can't scale very fucking far. Like the whole purpose of private property is that you have this sort of fragmentation localization. There's a Mac, there's a, there's a local maxima across which you can exert force. Um, and, you know, that, you know, re really the exertion of force is what helps you demarcate uh, private property. Um, so, so anyway, there's a, there's a bunch of threads there to pull, but basically in those early days, um, and you know the the, the sort of the, the the Greek, the Macedonian, the 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 Roman ancients, um, even into sort of like Persia and stuff like that. But they, they were a little bit, um, you know, the, their numbers were a hell of a lot larger, which is why you know at those scales things broke down and they really required slavery in order to function. Whereas in in the sort of um, the more monarchic, um, you know, Mediterranean Baltic region, oh sorry, uh, Balkan region or modern Balkan region. Um, area like it was um it was monarchic there was private property held by royal families who rose up through valor bravery courage and um and the acquisition of territory yes through force but um you know then it was held through um you know through through various means so anyway just setting the stage there i want to throw it back to moist um to finish what he was talking about before before we let him jump back in i gotta just put a nice chocolate about listening to describe that it's so funny because we tend to think about kings as being inherently this rise through violence, right? But the way you described that was inherently a rise through consent due to competence, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. which is very, very different than this whole, like, uh, what the, the divine destiny or whatever it was in the U.S., manifest destiny or, like, divine right of kings or any of that stuff. It's, like, actually consensual. Yep. Like, you know, I've seen this in kind of funny ways in my organization, right? Because my original goal I set out to do was going out there and doing this peer-to-peer -peer matchmaking of helping people go out there and build these farm nodes, right? But it was really funny because the highest quality people that I bumped into are the ones I selected to kind of start working with. And all the high quality people, we'd get a little ways on their project and they would just jump ship off theirs and join my team to start building what we're doing in Oklahoma. So it was like we assembled this huge aligned team through consent of competence of people knowing that it was the best place for their own will. Which has been really interesting because it like a perfect example of how in a real world absent of all the malincentives, how competence is meant to rise and coalesce around a strong center that takes care of those that are around it. But uh, it so really, we were go ahead, go ahead, Sven. Yeah, it, no, it, it, it really does, man. It really does. Like you know, hi hierarchies of competence are a beautiful thing, and they've emerged since the beginning of time because only through a hierarchy of competence can human beings organize themselves effectively uh, in, you know, as you would put probably the, the pursuit of truth. Right. So, so I was, I was literally just on a podcast, um, orange pilling a guy who's kind of like red pilled. And I was, you know, we were talking about, I always trap people by, you know, uh, I always trap red pill people by asking them why free speech is important. And then, you know, you know, we inevitably come to the, you know, the, the free speech is a mechanism to discover truth. And blah blah, and then I end up, you know, getting them to the point of like, well, Bitcoin's the only way to make free speech profitable, and I'm like, gotcha, motherfucker. But, you know, anyway, like, what what was sort of, um, you know, the, the all, all these things, like the, the the pursuit of truth, is what enables um, a 
a group of people um, from, from the level of the individual up through to society to survive, like, uh, and to subsist and to thrive and to increase their, um, their carrying capacity uh, as a society, right? Like, so if you, you know, if you tell yourself that there's a, uh, water here like and you're gonna drink but there's no fucking water you're gonna lie to yourself and you're gonna die of thirst very quickly so it's like the discovery of truth is required and to do that uh in a collective sense you need hierarchy of competence and in the early days competence was really about you know uh leading men um i mean i mean you gotta remember like we're fucking pussies in the modern world like you know these fuckers marched like you know (laughs) hundreds of kilometers fucking horseback like you know slept in the fucking snow like all this sort of shit like fought fucking lions and stuff and like armor like man it was it was a different fucking world and and the kind of individual that had to rise to the top of that you know wasn't um you know some fucking flake like you know the original kings and queens were uh you know masters in their craft um and Whilst we might look at that as barbaric now, because we are, you know, sitting up here on our fucking high horse that, you know, sits on the foundation that they developed, like, you know, it, it required um, competence in the dimension that was required back then. Um, so, you know, th- there was some greatness about people. Um, and yeah, that's what generally rises to the top in, in a hierarchy of competence. So I was going to say one more thing, and I'll hand it back to Moist. For sure. one, of my, one of my basic premises here is that in a healthy society or any organization of people, you want the accountability to line up with the responsibility of the person or group of people that is responsible for the decisions are those that bear the price of said decisions. When that gets out of alignment it's when you have problems, but it's not just out of alignment in the short time frame. One of the biggest differences between these societal structures we're talking about now, like monarchies versus democracies and the kind of bureaucracies we have now, is that you're able to carry responsibility and thus accountability over long, longer periods of time. But what's a back burner that jump into later? Moist, we were talking about Greece. While you were gone, I was asking Svetsky some questions about Athens and about whether or not that was an example of a place that kind of devolved from the aristocracy into more of the mob rule and asking him some of what he knew about history about that. And that's right back to you where you were talking about just the information about history here. Okay. Hopefully third time's a charm and uh, the uh, connection holds up, but uh, actually really um, a good comparison to what you were saying is kind of like Caesar's reign in, in Rome. He, uh, he was a patrician, so he was from kind of like what would have been the aristocracy, but he kind of fancied himself as a, as a man of the people. And actually his, his constant pandering to the, uh, to the plebes actually, in my view, was one of the key, contra- you know, key contributing factors that led to the Roman Civil War, which destroyed the Republic and, uh, you know, led to the, uh, to the creation of the Empire and so forth. But uh, it's... It's interesting because going back, Caesar was still a man of like great ability. Like if you if you go through his uh, his conquests within Gaul, uh, they're just, I mean, the guy was a military genius. It wasn't even that, just that. I mean, he was very daring and so forth. And um, they, you know, they'd be starving out in the rain and mud, and they'd be building these ramps to like besiege 
uh, I think it was, I can't remember the name of the group, the, what became like Belgium and so forth. But in, anyway, it, it goes into the whole kind of skin in the game type of thing. Like Caesar had just a huge following because he was out in the field with his men all the time, you know, charging up, you know, charging up the hill, leading them out and out in the shit, so to speak. And so, uh, you know, and, and it, it goes forward. I mean, well, Alexander actually is another good example. He actually uh, abolished taxes in Greece and then just basically uh, bet the future, bet the farm on concrete quests as he went into, you know, what's modern day Turkey and so forth. And uh, he was constantly in the field. I remember there was one battle. I can't remember who they were fighting. I, I think it was the Persians. But he took like a he took like a hit or two hit. He got knocked off his horse and took like a nasty gash, like like a, a sword went through his helmet or something, and it like went into his head. When he climbed up the wall afterwards and led. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just it's yeah. it's it's kind of going back to your point about how inconceivable it is to compare. Like, you know, we have like oh I don't know like Trump or Obama. They just they just sit behind like a desk somewhere very far from the conflict. They're never actually out with the boys, um, you know, and. That kind of started, I think, in the 1500s or whatever. But, I mean, you could look at the Hundred Years' War, countless examples where the, the kings were always in the field with the men. And that is why, you know, I, I, they were the most able-bodied. That's why they rose to the top. And I think there's a connection there between, you know, having these competent leaders and then having, like, flourishing arts and so on and so forth. And uh, I'll turn it over to whoever's next, and I'll kind of jump in later. Go ahead, Svetsky. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, that that connection is, um, I mean, you know, a midwit might say, oh, co you know, correlation doesn't mean causation, right? But it's, um, it's, it, it's evident, like, th these people were, were in many senses, like, at least the way we would uh, perceive them today is, like, larger than life, like, they, they performed feats that required such levels of um of, of courage valor bravery etc that you know that then manifested into the um the artwork and the architecture and everything else that they set out to build so it's kind of like there's a saying from tony robbins that i like it's like how you do uh something is how you do everything um and you know people for example who um who like to take you know, little shortcuts on things and like, you know, the, who like to cheat or whatever, you, you find that kind of behavior um, evident across multiple dimensions in their life generally. Um, and and the, the, the opposite is also true, is that if, you know, if, if you're a believer in greatness, et cetera, like, you know, legacy and, um, uh, you know, glory, whatever, whatever words of grandiosity you want to place there, that's probably going to be... Um, going to be reflected in the kind of people that you gather around you and then the, the the key thing there though is um you it will manifest in a very different way when you are architecting your own property versus um using basically confiscated funds and right. architecting property that you um that you uh, are just the representative of, right? Like that you don't actually own, you don't give a fuck. So it doesn't matter. Um, so anyway, that, that, that's sort of where I'll shut up. I know Mike's got his hand up. So. Can, I, can I jump in on that, that last point? Okay. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, so, so basically what, 
this kind of goes into uh, what a lot of people in the Bitcoin space talk about. It's the the kind of like forward thinking, thinking into the future, considering, you know, uh, the course of events. Like if, if you have a monarchy, it was always very important for them to have a son, you know, in order to because uh, they were the largest private landowner. And so they needed to pass on, you know, their possessions and so forth, um, ideally, as long as possible. And so when they make decisions like their decisions had had a lot of weight. You know, they could theoretically lose the kingdom and therefore the inheritance to their children would be, you know, would evaporate. And so it's it's just a completely different perspective, like their upbringing would have been different. And uh, the way that they were they were taught, because there was just so much riding on them making good decisions, whereas, you know, with with democracy, it's just it's just musical chairs. You know, you just uh, it's like the monorail guy on The Simpsons. You just want to. Uh, you know, you go into the next town, you grab all you can and you just run off. You know, there's no real there's no there's literally no skin in the game, you know, and uh, I could I could segue that into uh, one of the uh, pitfalls of democracy. But I'll, I'll save that for later. Well, let's even just think a real, real cognizant example for right now is Congress making bank trade in the stock market as the feds pump it up and down. Right. It's short-term extraction while they're in office, even though it's a democratic republic, not even a full-blown right democracy, right? Versus having the ability, like a king does, to think multiple generations forward of what's good for where you have skin in the game beyond even just yourself because your children is like a form of your own skin, right? So it's aligning accountability and responsibility where the incentives are the same versus what we have now is nothing like that today. Like, I, I, I want to just, without belaboring this point, I think there's two ways to generate uh, income. It is to build a capital base or to generate cash flow. And when you are a representative um, and do not own the underlying capital or you do not own, own the underlying private property, you, your incentive is to do basically what Joel just mentioned there is like to, to trade the market and to create regulations and all that sort of stuff so that you can extract wealth while you can at the expense of the capital because the capital is going to be represented by someone else next and your incentive is to capture as much as of the cash flow as you can now irrespective of any um uh adverse effects later on but when you flip that and you have a private property owner like a large private property owner like a king or something like that like a lord or a noble or whatever when you own that shit, then you think twice about um using up all of your capital to generate cash today because if you use up all your capital then you don't have the future capacity to generate cash and the, the best example um i've ever heard is like rothbard kind of um i think it was rothbard who laid this out in in one of his books but he basically says you've got let's use a forest um and uh we we need wood so we have a forest and let's look at the three models model number one is kind of like the socialist communist model which you know uh, does away with the market pricing engine. And, you know, it just assumes that it should just cut a bunch of fucking trees down to give people wood and everyone gets the same amount of wood. And then all of a sudden it's completely fucking inefficient because no, like everyone's getting the same thing irrespective of need. And you end up chopping the whole fucking tree down, sorry, the whole forest down and you don't give a fuck. Right. So, so we know that that's a fuck up. Then you have kind of like the public private model which is the one that people think is capitalism, which is fucking fundamentally not, is the, the public uh, 
representative is the one who has the right to mandate what happens with that land. And because it's public, like, you know, you've got this tragedy, the commons, which is they like sell a license to a private entity who is attached to a market that can uh, work out and calculate need. Um, and with that license, because they're just renting that public property, this private entity is incentivized to cut down as many fucking trees as possible while it's in there. Um, and the politician or the government or the agency or whatever is that is the representative of this public property is incentivized because it's trying to generate cash flow in its period of operation to make as much money from that. So they just don't give a fuck about the, the capital itself. They don't care about the, um, the trees. They're like, well, let's just fucking chop as much of it as we can whilst we're in term. And then you have the third option, which is the private property owner of the forest, for example. He will look at the market. He'll you know, get the feedback in the same way as the private entity does in the middle example. But instead of chopping down all the fucking trees, he'll be planting new fucking trees so that he can build up his capital stock for later because he has to think long-term. His future cash flow is dependent upon the existence of the underlying capital. So, so that kind of, that last example is like really where I think monarchy completely diverges from something like democracy is that there is long-term skin in the game and there is an attachment to the future preservation or sorry, to the, to, to the preservation of the capital for the future um, production of cash flow. And that doesn't exist when you have, um, when you have public representatives or public property. Right. Under a virtuous monarch, that's how it would work. Under a virtuous monarch. Exactly. So, so that's the thing. So, so, so this does not, um, solve for the dumb cunt um, thing, right? So, like for the Nero uh, 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 archetype. So, you know, under a virtuous monarch, that makes sense. But the the I guess the um, the the retard monarch goes broke relatively um, quickly um, without getting larger in the process. Yeah, I mean, I mean you know, this is where things get a little bit more complex. But anyway, I'll, I'll just shut the fuck up for the moment because I see Mike still got his hand up. So, go ahead, Mike. I got something to add there, but you can you can take it first. Okay. <clears throat> well, I just want to try to play around with this thought a little bit um, for myself. So we're talking about the virtuous monarch and how their incentives are aligned, um, or how they're incentivized to think long term. Um, number one, because they have a legacy that they need to maintain. Um, many times, because they're transferring over the reins to the kingdom to their heirs, and so. I think there's like a number of variables which then come into play as far as why these type of societies, these type of, um, yeah, this type of structure um, produces, you know, beautiful art. And one of it is that low time preference, right? And when you have your artists working under you who are aligned with your vision, and I also think that, you know, the idea of God plays a large role in this as well, right? In extending that time preference. And so an artist um, calls upon others to see the world as the artist sees it. And when that vision is inspired by heavens and angels and peace and prosperity, and all of that is, um, you know, in alignment with a low type preference vision, then naturally, right, we're going to start to produce art which manifests that vision. And <clears throat> I think that's a lot different than uh, what we see today with uh, democracies, especially, I think money has a big 
role to play in it, right? So I think that uh, democracies kind of always devolve into some type of fiat currency. Um, and I think that the art that we see today manifested from that is um, is the self-centered, egotistical um, art that we experience just in the personalities of people. Um, and yeah, that's, uh, that's just my take on that. I, I, I do see there being multiple factors, right? There's, there's the idea of God, there's the currency, there's the money, and then there's the time preference of the king, of the virtuous monarch. Right. I mean, uh, art is my medic response, right? Among, among other things, but art is my medic response. It involves looking at the values of the world you see around you and being able to articulate them back to that world in a way that's going to make sense of what's going on for them. And that, that central position in the narrative, which an artist steps out to occupy by creating a thing of, of beauty that attracts the attention of all who see it, um, I, I think that really is influenced by, uh, by the values of what's going on. I, 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 what, I, what I hesitate over, the question I want to put to the group I'm curious about people's thoughts on is um, how much of that depends on the, on the political mechanics versus the economics versus people's perception or the artist's perception of what of the world that they live in and either those political or economic factors. Um, and if those diverge too much, does it cease to be art and become propaganda? I'm not really leading anywhere with this, but I think it's an interesting way of interrogating the thesis. Okay, uh, real quick. Um, before I jump to that, I wanted to jump to one thing that Michael said, if that's okay. Um, Please. One of the interesting things, and I, I don't, I have not been able to figure out exactly what the connection is, but again, if you, if you go back to uh, ancient Greece, uh, Lydia is where the first um, uh, gold and silver coins were, well, I guess there'd have been the, the ingots or whatever, however you pronounce that word, but, you know, they more or less coined money. They were the first ones to do it. And so they had, you know, gold and silver and so forth. Uh, Rome had the arius, it had the uh, denarius, and... Um, you know, then you, if you fast forward to um, like the 13th century, you have, uh, you know, the Venetian ducat, the florin. And so in, in all these kind of like kingdoms, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, uh, douchey, ducky, I, I don't know how to pronounce that. Um, you had sound money as a feature of all this. I mean, you know, you had relative peace in Europe after the Napoleonic Wars in the uh, the 19th century. And you, you had a, a, a complete system for the most part. Of, of monarchies and you know we had essentially a gold standard and so forth it's not to say that banks didn't try to you know pyramid on top of that with banknotes and so forth but um at, at least as far as history is concerned there seems to be something inter intertwined there there's a connection between sound money monarchy and actually uh also to michael's point all of these these cultures had some sort of a uh like a god feature you know whether it was the uh, polytheism of uh Greece and Rome, or the uh, Roman Catholicism of Florence and Venice, and of course, you know, Protestantism, Catholicism in the uh, the nineteenth century. I'll just, I'll, one thing I'll just I'll make two observations. One um, for and one contrary. Um, is the first one is art is generally downstream from survival. Like you know, if, if you got to eat. Um, you're going to try and eat first and then you're going to like create art. Now that doesn't mean that 
some art does not get produced in really rough times or really bad times like that obviously does happen um in fact many times you know i mean the majority of art is actually a a representation of some sort of struggle or whatever right so 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 not notwithstanding that but it still comes downstream from um like you, you need the time and the space to do that like if you're dying of starvation you know you can't do that so so i i would argue that the more prosperous periods of history you know have something to do with um uh the space for art to be created but also um you know the the i guess the a, a culture of greatness um and in a in a far more competitive uh environment um where you know you can't like where being for example a really shit general on the battlefield um you you're going to fucking die like the the consequences are a lot more dire than um than being a shitty bureaucrat um at you know as as a mayor right like so so the 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 severity of the consequences um is 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 a lot different so what that does i think is it it a, a different type of culture emerges um and from a different type of culture you have a different type of art um so so art's kind of like downstream of culture in that sense so so there's that i think the the, the piece about um you know a deity or a god or something like that is interesting because um th- that i don't know if it um if it's entirely consistent with prosperity because you know you've had um you know gods and deities across many different cultures um both competent and fucking incompetent um you know like whether it's china or india or you know all sorts of fucking strange places um you know aztecs and incas and all that sort of stuff and they've all had their relative you know prosperity and non-prosperity but like i i don't know if it's a if it's a defining feature and i don't know if that is can can be directly tied i mean maybe maybe um you know i think it does you know the the absence of it certainly um creates a problem and that vacuum is then filled with some other shit like you know in 2021 you know Fauci and Bill Gates are god you know what i mean so that's kind of like fucked up but um you know that that that's a different um discussion so anyway i just wanted to make that observation uh, really quickly like artists sort of downstream of culture and culture is kind of a product of the ages um and then you know the ages is kind of a product of what it required to survive thrive and progress at, in the age kind of thing Go ahead, Ben. I'd like to offer the same like what one pro and one con of of specifically that point on on the the contribution of belief in God. On the on the pro side, I feel like if the direction we want to take this is that a culture based on a hierarchy of competence produces better art, then I think there's there's no dispute that you'd want to be in a culture where your gods are at the height of the hierarchy of competence. You wouldn't want to be in a culture um where where you're concerned about whether your your god is doing sloppy work um and if you were if you were a god you would also want to be at the top of the hierarchy of competence um i'm going to leave that thought there but the uh the, the... <laughs> that, i can't help but laugh at that one faith cuz it makes me think about the old testament story of Elijah on the mountain right. mocking the enemy's gods it's like exactly. is he got to sleep right. is he taking a pee like right. where is he, he at right now you know i hear flushing noises guys your your god isn't isn't here um and but the, but the flip side of that is if if you were a culture adopting a god 
you would you would want to be a little bit pardon me Talebian in in selecting a god that was with you through adversity right and through times when that competence hierarchy breaks down uh only a survivable god and only a survivable worshipful god in those crises would be worth having on any serious time scale right uh, a fair weather god is no summer summer god and a sunshine god is not really worth having anyway i'll leave it there yeah and that's that's right where i wanted to circle back to what you're saying Svetsky, about the uh the virtuous monarch right like the core problem of everything at the very base layer is that we have free will and we get to make choices and by and large humans are dumb creatures who make dumb choices and the biggest thing that we need to be able to actually have a better world is have good people using their will to make good choices that create beauty in the world around them and the best way to do that is to align incentives to where you're punished when you make bad ones over long periods of time right so like it goes right to this whole as above so below thing right like in our current government system we have these politicians who are competing in this backbiting secrecy to get theirs and extract as much as they can and you see that percolate all the way down the entire economy versus in like a kingdom you've got a low time preference of somebody trying to take care of the world around them to create beauty and stability like in the form of like peace for those under them to prosper and thrive i mean that's kind of their artistic contribution as the one who's carrying the authority right so, so like back back to the example of what i'm building I'm having this interesting phenomenon take place where we're building up this headquarters property in Oklahoma where we've got a lot of people moving out and joining the community. And so they're contributing to the fundraise for the land itself. And there's not really a lot of value prop as an investment proposition for it. What they're doing is they're putting skin in the game of helping support the authority of my team because they believe that when we go out there and use their resource of their will of consent to support us, We'll use our like political resources and our team's intelligence and capabilities of building the network of support we're building to create more stability in the region for them and their homestead and family to thrive. So it's this whole paradigm of consent again, where it's authority that's delegated by choice from the consent of those who are granting that authority because they believe that by them giving their will to it, that they're going to have better peace in order to succeed and thrive underneath of it. And so that's true with a lot of the structures we built at the Citadel too, right? Where like, we've got so many people who are like, man, you should just build like, you should sell plots of land and build a homeowners association, have like voting principles. And it's like, they're just trying to recreate the same democracy we came out of, which is just chaos. Versus we've been really true and adherent to the first principles, which has limited the number of people that get it severely, sadly. I would have hoped more people would have understood but we've got it where the authority lines are really clear and that you're giving assent to where you trust to serve your best interest. And it has a self-corrective mechanism because if me and my team does not honor taking care of those who have believed in us, they'll go elsewhere. They can easily vote with their feet. And so for us to maintain this coalescing center of authority to where people are bringing their will into alignment with ours, to where we have this density of human impact through everybody working together so strongly, we have to be servant kings. We have to stoop down and do the hard work of doing what's best for all of those who are coming to be a part of what we're doing. So it has this rapid corrective mechanism, especially in the early stages here before it has a lot of momentum, where 
the best with the good hearts that serve those around them well are those that rise to the surface as leaders. And I think that circles back to what you were trying to get into, Svetsky, about how monarchies have this inherent tendency to punish brutally bad kings and for the good ones to ascend on longer periods of time. Only, only insofar as it's um, profitable, though. Um, and, and this is why, again, it all, I think it just boils down to, um, to you know, the, the preservation of one's capital and the ability to project um, force to, you know, th this is why, like, even monarchs and, you know, even even a virtuous king, like, you know, what, some one thing that makes a king virtuous is, like, not uh, subjugating his people to, you know, stupid, you know, taxation and, like, um, extraction, you know, not going and continually um, expanding the empire um, to the point where it's stretched so thin that it fucking implodes on itself. So it's like, you know, good economic action and good value judgment is tied into um, virtue in, in many ways. I think they're sort of one and the same. Um, and, you know, the private property through, by, by, you know, pardon the pun, but private property by virtue of its existence has um, a limited scale. Um, and that's a very, very good thing. And this, this is sort of something that I think, and, and I mean, we'll get into this conversation later, is like why Bitcoin is fundamentally something that will fragment the world into, you know, a series of, you know, a million city-states as opposed to, um, you know, large homogenous fucking state blobs that can't... Um, operate economically feasibly um, and, you know, can't project power across, uh, you know, large distances fraudulently by extracting from people. So anyway, um, I see Moist has his hand up. Um, I think can you hear what he's got to say. Moist, you want to go ahead? Yeah, I think just kind of listening to um, you guys speak, it, it, it seems like there's a um, kind of a, a difference that one of the key differences between a, a democracy and a monarchy has to do with capital accumulation. And, um, you know, Svetsky made the, the point about how, um, you know, if you can't feed yourself, uh, you don't really have time to, to make art and so forth. There's actually, oh, I can't remember the guy, but he, he had a, he had a quote, something to the effect of, uh, you know, uh, art for art's sake is a uh, philosophy of the well-fed or something to that effect. And, uh, that's always stuck with me, but, um, you know, if you with with kingdoms, one of the interesting feature in uh, kingdoms, I can't speak as much for, you know, uh, you know, like uh, ancient China and so forth. But I, I know in Europe, like in medieval times, and I think all the way into the 19th century, you had very little taxation, you know, because the, the since the king was a private landowner, the king and the other barons, the aristocrats, whatever around him, they derived most of their income from the produce of their land. And uh, so, so taxes were minimal. Therefore, um, you know, you, you had a kind of a system, an incentive structure, if you will, that uh, allowed for capital accumulation. And then over time, you know, you, you, you know, the, the kings, the, the barons would have more money, I guess, for lack of a better term. And that's where, uh, you know, patronage comes in and you can start uh, like, uh, you know, I posted that Van Eyck, uh, from uh, the other day or whatever. Uh, he's one of my kind of favorite painters. But uh, his his patron was Philip the Good, who was the uh, 
he was like the son of like the the French king or whatever. And, uh, you know, just the same thing, you know, the, the capital accumulation system, you know, uh, allows for people to have the funds to put towards people with talent. And uh, under democracy, you know, the whole musical chair system, it just basically destroys capital because of like, like Shvetsky said, you know, deforestation. I know like if you look at fisheries out on the, out on the coast, you get like a permit and you can only go for like these six months. And so every, you have every incentive in the world to just like gut the uh, supply. And uh, yeah, so I just wanted to kind of throw that into the mix and uh, yeah. I can confirm from experience that's not hypothetical. So Svetsky, would you say that beauty is hard to measure its value economically? Um, I, I've, I've got a working theory on this around like beauty and aesthetics being um, like basically uh, were like synonyms for morality. Um, and I, I'm, I'm still, I'm still, you know, forming this in my head, but um you know, m morality for me then is related to, uh, a, you know, accurate value judgment. So, you know, the, the antonym of sin, you know, sin meaning missing the mark. So like, you know, accuracy or accurate value judgments, um, are, you know, in, in some way related to, um, to morality, uh, related to beauty or related to aesthetics. So I think, I think there's a real, like there's a golden thread that links, um, all of those and accurate value judgments to tie that into economics is literally the accurate um, deployment of resources, time, energy, um, and natural resources. So, so there seems to me to be a thread between each of them. And that again, seems to all be rooted into this biological territorial imperative that we're, um, that we're, uh, I guess, um, it's incarnate in us. Um, like it, it's sort of, it's, it's, it's part of our fucking DNA. Um, in fact, it's part of the DNA of basically all of, um, all, all natural species. Um, so anyway, yeah, that, that would be my answer to that. It's, it's, I think there's a, there's a golden thread between all of them. So I would look at that and look at the typical religious triune, you know, the true, the good and the beautiful. So the true is what you're saying of the ability to make accurate value judgments. And it's, shows its value simply because it works. And then the good is the low time preference, right? Where like, when you pursue the good, you're cultivating trust in a society and that trust enables peace and safety for the development of long-term human collaboration, which is where a lot of value flows from, right? But at the top of that ascendance, you have the beautiful. And the beautiful, I would argue, is hard to measure its value because it exists for its own benefit, right? It just simply is enjoyable. It just simply is, and it's simply like the end state of the goal as well as the just the moment of what you're living to create, right? Any thoughts there, Spetsky? I mean, yes. In, interesting definition of good. I haven't thought about good as um, as a manifestation of, um, of time preference, but it's, I mean, the, at least for me, the definition seems to be consistent, so so I like that. Um, I want to... I, I wanna, I wanna answer with a question on the um on the beautiful thing because I, I i for me beauty is like a super fascinating concept so um is so, so to you is um is beauty objective or subjective i'm curious to hear your answer on this go for it moist i'll answer right after you 
Yeah, so you guys are kind of touching on uh, some things that that I find interesting. Um, you know, when you when you look at like Greco-Roman art, uh, there's this kind of uh, at least when they they deal with like sculpture and so forth, there's this kind of fixation on um, like you know muscular men, uh, you know, with like bulging muscles, very fit. And then if you look at like the 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 modern, I don't know, Netflix brand of like what's supposed to be attractive uh you know you have these morbidly obese uh type 2 diabetic uh purple haired you know freaks for lack of a better term and uh i i couldn't tell you exactly why like i couldn't put into words why one is is more um is superior to the other but it's just like an intuitive thing you know i, I don't know if you guys are able to actually put into words you know what what the difference is you know because a lot of people say oh art's subjective and blah, 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 blah. But uh, I, I do think that there is a, um, I don't know if it, if, it, if the line is like healthy, unhealthy, or what exactly it is, but I'd be curious to hear your guys' thoughts. Hey, you mind if I uh, just jump in here real quick, um, Joel? Go for it. Yeah. So, I mean, the way I think about this, right, I think that uh, meaningful art, right, uh, beautiful art is meaningful art. And I think meaningful art requires proof of work, right? It requires skill, discernment, judgment, thought, um, creativity. And I think that as humans, we can recognize this. And these are all directed at pleasing our soul. And I do feel like there's some objectivity in that. So just wanted to add that. Okay. So, cool. Cool. So here's so, where I so jump I'm, in. I'm still, I'm, st I'm still waiting for is beauty subjective or objective. So, so I'm getting a few mixed answers. So I'm, yeah. I'm just curious. <laughs> so, so here's why I jump in, Svetsky. Um, you ever been involved in a romance where it's just super epic to where it goes so deep in a mythic sense it almost feels like worship? Uh, yes, the crazy bitch is uh, listening to us at the moment. <laughs> okay, so I would argue that, like, the greatest manifestation of beauty is found inside a romance, right? Because we're created for relationship, is what I would argue. Um, I won't dive into trying to un untangle that argument too much, but I'll just lay out my thesis here. So, in romance, what's happening there is you are celebrating the unveiling of the essence of one another. So, it's like you are seeing something that you just find captivating or awe-inspiring or wondrous to the point that it's like worshipful in that place where you're ascending into this oneness of romance sex everything right so to me that is a metaphor of what the ultimate human condition is supposed to be which is romance with the divine to where we are ascending towards this principles and beauty and being that is beyond us that we're striving to become as or become like and in celebrating and entering into it it's like an unveiling of it and an unveiling of it in us to the world around us and so like real art is so multifaceted and what it can demonstrate itself as because it's like you're trying to use some form of language to demonstrate this thing you see that you find true or good or beautiful so that others can partake in the revelation of it so it's like inherently subjective in that you're experiencing it as a single being, but it's objective in the sense of you're experiencing something beyond all of you 
that is intrinsically just, true, or good, or beautiful. Go ahead, Faith. I, I'll, I'll take the subjective side, too, uh, in, in that um, it seems to me that I, I, my art node, I have my art node here. It's running behind my eyes. Um, it, it updates every 10 minutes with everything I find beautiful. And uh, I'm afraid that the rules that govern this node, I try to communicate them to people, and uh, sometimes it's successful and sometimes it's not. Um, I think one of the reasons that it often fails is that at that highest point of ascent, there is a sort of paradox that creeps in because you, you have to come to grips with, uh, in that union, the, the person on the other end of the line is weaker than you in some ways. And how you handle uh, approaching the beautiful with another person whose, view, whose perspective on it is different is, I think, at the heart of chivalry. And chivalry, I think, I can't argue is beautiful. That's too much paradox, mm. so I'll leave it there. Mm -hmm. I think one distinction I'm hearing here that I'm, that I'm picking up that I just sort of had a light bulb is I think art is definitely subjective. Um, and then I think the answer to is beauty subjective or objective? I think the answer is just yes. Full stop. <laughs> I think it yeah, has I... to be an attempt at communication, which, which is an attempt <laughs> for objectivity or at least intersubjectivity. Right. But well, yeah, intersubjectivity is a, is a very interesting word because I think, you know, we, we start with sort of subjectivity. We have this intersubjectivity and that's kind of where objectivity emerges from. And I think beauty is something that bridges all three. Um, now, art, mm -hmm. you know, is maybe a little bit more in the subjective zone, you know, maybe intersubjective. But art is something that can be beautiful um, or art is me taking a shit on a fucking piece of paper and putting it up on a wall. You know what I mean? Like at least in modernity that might be um, art, right? Or sticking a fucking banana to the wall or something. So, so that, and, but that's not fucking beautiful. But is, so that, think, is that objectively not beautiful? Because if we could say something's not objectively beautiful, can we then say something's objectively beautiful? What we're saying there is, mm -hmm. yeah, so, so if something is not objectively beautiful, then it's, you know, it's objectively ugly, like it's, it's repugnant. Um, but subjectively, someone could still um, call it art. So, so that's why I'm saying like art doesn't have to be beautiful. Art could just be fucking anything. Um, but generally, the, the modus operandi for art or the raison d'etre, like the reason that it fucking exists is to present something beautiful. Um, and, and this is why I think, you know, if, if the culture has some sort of um, morality intertwined in it, um, you know, if aesthetics is a high value in the culture, then I think that will come out in the um, in the art. Whereas today, like we don't value aesthetics anymore. We we like we live in the tyranny of the lowest common denominator, right? And you know we that that is represented like in our art. Like you know now fitness is being a fat fucking bitch who you know has a fucking penis. Like I don't know what the fuck that means. Yeah. So let's ignore the crude and focus on your definition of art being the attempt to unveil the beautiful to one another. Th this is how I would define this part of the conversation is very simply that art is a subjective attempt to communicate the revelation of the objective beauty of the divine to one another. Oh man, Svetsky, you still here? Did you drop? I'll wait for him for one second, then repeat it. Bummer. Okay. So then from there, I think one of the reasons we see this connection between art and kingdoms is because the king is actually, in my opinion, the first receiver of patronage. 
because, okay, Svetsky, you're back. So I was making the argument that art is, by your definition, right, trying to reveal the objective beauty to one another. So it's the subjective experience attempted to be communicated about an objective experience of something that's transcendently divine and divine defined by like true or good or beautiful. Trying to share that with one another because we subjectively experience that thing that objectively is beyond us and we want the others to experience it too, right? Which is why this crude modern art feels like such sacrilege and such a perversion because it's communicating something that's the complete antithesis of that to one another and trying to worship it as if it is that thing we should be striving to be like. Um, so I don't know where you came right back. So I was starting to weigh into the argument that I believe one of the reasons we see this huge connection between art thriving and kingdoms is because a king is like the first guy receiving patronage because he is the one who's creating beauty first. Now, granted, he is not creating it with a chisel and a hammer of crafting marble or a paintbrush and a canvas. The beauty he unveils to the world is through his strength and his wisdom and his discernment and his intellect of creating peace so that those underneath of his care may thrive and be their best versions of themselves. That the world and the collaboration of the businesses or the artists or everything happening underneath of his domain has freedom to be their real self authentically of full expression of the full power and magnitude of what they have it in them to be, right? So he first has to receive, like back to the Oklahoma headquarters, that gift of that consent from those around him to grant him the power to deploy that because he's serving beauty that's not easy to economically measure. He's serving the beauty of creating peace, which does not have a simple, like, we can sell this product for this amount of Satoshis, right? It has a very intuitive valuation of just the quality of life of those beneath them. Okay, and then, but from that flows, he's also the first patron who gives away of the world he's created, of the value he's created, to have that space for others to celebrate and experience beauty of the peace and goodness of the world he's created in the same way. So he's like the conduit of the incarnation of that as above, so below, so that that world can even exist. So he's both the receiver and the giver of the patronage for art. Moist, if you want to go. Um, yeah, I just, just real quick. Um, there seems to be a, you know, to use a Bitcoin term, I suppose, uh, kind of a proof of work thing that that I'm noticing, you know, first we were talking about kings. And uh, if you start with like, oh, I don't know, like the uh, the Plantagenet dynasty in, uh, in, in medieval England, you had William the Conqueror was, you know, the first one to come over. And, uh, you know, he was a man of, of gifts. He was, uh, you know, a great commander. You know, with that comes, you know, leading men, managing supply chains, uh, managing resources, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, through a lengthy process, Battle of Hastings, whatever, you know, they, they, they conquer modern England and, uh, you know, set up a, a dynasty and so forth. And, uh, you know, so there's this kind of long term proof of work type element, likewise with, uh, you know, good art, you know, whether it be uh, Notre Dame, which took almost a century to, to, to finish, uh, Westminster Abbey, um, a lot of these, uh, the Sistine Chapel, whatever have you. Uh, there's just this like, it's kind of like uh, resources and time, uh, proof of work type of thing that seems to uh, be a key element in, uh, in all of this, uh, 
even even going to, to to Joel and the cattle ranching, I mean, that's not something you can just do. It's, you know, you got to find the land, you got to find a water source, you know, you need different types of, of uh, uh, not commodities, but, um, you know, machinery and so forth to, uh, to uh, set up a, you know, a process that's it's going to work over time. And so, uh, I don't know, that's just something I noticed, uh, yeah. kind of an element of uh, proof of work. Uh, while totally, talking. totally. I think I think a really easy way to kind of interpret the the king thing is like imagine the like and most people kind of at least have experienced this in some ways like the difference between like decorating your own room um, or your own house or your own garden um, or something like that is kind of the the same version of like a king doing it just at a at a more macro scale and again if we layer in the idea of um, of of a, of a culture in which you know competence or bravery or valor or the, those kind of values um, are what bubble to the top, um, then you know the art will represent that, and it, you know you as the owner of your domain will want to um, you know represent that in your um, in your domain, like in the same ways you want you know you want to represent that in you know a nice house that you have, etc. So it's like. Yeah. Anyway, I think um, the, the the cornerstone of of it all is the fact that it is private property. Like that's that's the biggest divergence between the modern world and that um, ancient or you know even medieval incarnation of the world is that like because it started from a, a place of ownership, um, you you know the 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 owner was able to um, to project the um, the culture into um, into the art, uh, whereas today there is no fucking ownership, um, and everything is just done, you know, dryly, um, you know, to kind of from, from a from a place of extraction. So like the culture is fucking empty, and the there's no ownership, and it doesn't matter if it looks like shit, and it you know no one fucking cares. It doesn't represent them anymore. It's like none of that sort of stuff even comes into fucking play. You know, like. So you don't really care. Like you're not you're not designing your own room. You're not even living in your own room. It doesn't matter. Like you're not you know you're not building and designing your own house. You're just fucking doing it. So it's like no one cares. There's no like there's no skin in the game. See, that's why I'd say Svetsky that that private property or skin in the game enables the transcendence of purely utilitarian utilitarianism to pursuing something that is beyond just economic value to something that's just, we desire it to exist because we believe it increases quality of being itself. Because it's pursuing something beyond us that makes us reach further to be better, right? Or it celebrates places we've seen that occur before. Yeah, I, I, I just would be hesitant to separate, um, like I would, I would personally not separate, oh, sorry, I would not place um, economics and utilitarianism together. I think um, they're, they're two different things. I think economics transcends utilitarianism and economics lives in the realm of aesthetics. Um, they, I, I think they're, they're very much uh, one and the same. I, I think utilitarianism is um, a very different beast. So anyway, that, that's maybe another conversation, but I think hey, beauty and economics live together. Hey, uh, Joel, you want to open up the floor? We got some people that want to talk. Um, you think this is a good time or you want to go a little longer? Let, let me hit back at Svetsky one second on that one. 
So Svetsky, I'm seeing a dilemma in that in my own building in Oklahoma, right? Where there's this tension between this desire to create a place of peace and security and stability so that we could have human flourishing, which leads to economic success with that need to create like utilitarianism type economic success quickly. And the people who are coming into alignment with my team seem to be people that prioritize beauty and goodness beyond immediate truth of functionality of what makes most economic sense intellectually. It really does seem like there's a bit of like tension between these realities and that while I agree that pursuing what is beautiful requires pursuing what makes sense economically or that you can't pursue true vibrancy economically without pursuing what makes sense for the beautiful. How do I say this? That maximizing economics happens beneath also creating what's most beautiful. Let's say it that way. Because underneath that beautiful realm, you have the most space for economics to thrive. Okay, but the beauty is a higher dimension than the low time preference goodness, and the goodness is a higher dimension than the truth, right? So it's like they supersede each other, like one's a subset of the other. Subset or the interrelated, like, see, see, I, I would have said that um, beauty is actually downstream of sound economics, right? Because if your economics are all fucked up, um, you know, you'll, you'll never get to, you'll never get to beauty. Um, so it's like, this is where um agreed but there's a rate limiting factor on how far your economics can advance unless you're willing to back burner the economics for the sake of the next which is going to be goodness and then there's a rate limiting factor there until you could actually pursue yeah, the see, next which is the beautiful but see, see but that that is like that what you're discussing there is an economically sound decision so it's like the the, the more so if goodness is a um a function of time preference the, the longer your time preference, actually, the more economically sound you are. So, so goodness is alignment with, um, with, uh, with economics in that sense. So again, economics is an enabler of goodness. And then beauty is like, if you built something that is beautiful and you, you create an environment that is beautiful, it becomes attractive, which means it's economically feasible as well. Like if you create a dump, no one's going to fucking come there. So there's no attraction to it. So I think, I think they're, um, they're all inherently, um, uh, manifestations of um, accurate uh, economic value judgment. But I think that the challenge that you're having and the reason is probably an increased level of tension is that, um, you know, you, you, we're doing this in a place of transition. Um, and honestly, like in a place of transition, we're, we're kind of tearing down the old world or, and we don't even have to tear it down. The fucking thing is collapsing in on itself. Um, that transition is going to have a whole lot of tension between uh, not economics and beauty, but utilitarianism and beauty. Um, so, you know, and, and the fact is that economics kind of permeates all of them anyway. Um, so it's, a, you know, that, that that's where, um, you know, you might make a utilitarian decision at the uh, expense of beauty and it might give you short-term economic gain, but it will give you long-term economic pain, for example. So so that's kind of how I try and frame all of this. All sorts of fucking hands going up. Um, I'll yeah. Throw it to you guys. So I agree, but there is tension there 
Because often when you're trying to pursue what actually makes most rational economic sense or is most wise economically, often at the surface, if you don't have deep enough insight, it sometimes looks irrational. So even right. with what I'm building, where it has this utilitarian aspect of like, we're in this transition period, people have to survive. It's this really funny paradox because those that are pursuing utilitarianism to the highest order are those who are actually being the least successful. It's like you have to be willing to almost live inside that paradox of make decisions against your own economic interest to even serve your best economic interest by pursuing the higher dimension state. Yeah, all we're talking about there is like um, uh, time frames. That's all. So, so remember, e e economics is purely about time frame. It's like you, you can do all of the um, what seem like incredible economic decisions in the short term and the long term completely fucking blow yourself up so so it's always a trade-off and, and this is the this is actually the the i think the biggest part that people miss out in the world is that every fucking thing is a trade-off um and economics is kind of like the I, I again i view economics purely in the realm of like um a physics so it's like you, you have these bounds and beauty and goodness and all this sort of stuff exists within the bounds of economics um, and we can make the decisions that we want to make um, beauty and morality and you know a lower time preference and goodness is kind of a a very like it's it's the golden thread within the bounds of economics so 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 again i i wouldn't i would be hesitant to just i wouldn't place them on opposite sides of the spectrum you know what i mean like Utilitarianism, for example, is just a different thread within the bounds of economics, which I don't think is the golden thread that utilitarianism could be a silver thread or a fucking copper thread. It's not as good. Um, you know, it, it still has an economic outcome, um, you know, which might lean towards short termism or medium termism, but maybe not long termism. But, you know, that these these um, these different variations of uh, pursuit change change things. So anyway, so. So I would add to that, though, all decisions are made with imperfect knowledge. Totally. You're projecting forward based upon what you think are probabilities, right? Totally. Like you think about you think about a general going to war. He may be outnumbered. It may look like he's in a strategic disadvantaged position, but he may know something where he believes in his men more than the other guys because he knows they had more grit. You no, know, they got more balls. They're going to fight harder, longer, whatever. And so he makes a decision that looking at it from a probabilistic standpoint of the information to everybody else looks irrational, but economically it's the best decision because he has faith in something where he and imperfect information is making a different decision than somebody else would see. And that's what I mean here. I don't think it's purely a factor of time preference. I think it's a factor of judgment. It's in this realm of imperfect information where your hopes placed and what is your faith is in for how you judge the probabilities and where do you take your risks? Because when people prioritize goodness over like economic viability or prioritize beauty over goodness, like in the way that I'm kind of breaking down the pictures here, it shifts that whole paradigm of how you're looking at the judgment of the situation to a higher dimension of, of sight it's like you're actually creating a further level of alignment, even though you may not understand it when you're doing it. I want to pass it to Faith. I'm sure he's got something there. Dolce de Coromist, right? Like, sometimes you have to be a fool. And in supporting 
uh, in supporting Joel's project, that's very much what it feels like to me. So, so looking at it from where I stand, right? Like there, there is a boundary to what's possible in my life, uh, a boundary to the number of years I have and a boundary to the amount of effort I have and the boundary to the, the competencies that I have as, as much as I hate to admit it on, on air, but it's true. Uh, all right. So within these perfect, boundaries, man. Come on. <laughs> there, there are things, fucking cold. <laughs> there, there are things that I got to admit that I need to, I need to take a chance on and taking a chance on Joel feels like doing something that is outside what is possible. If this makes sense. Um, I don't feel like I'm doing it out of an action of rational economic calculus. I feel like I'm doing it, so to, to extend the physics analogy, right? Um, it, probabilistic reasoning works really well in a macro scale world where we understand the variables and where we can name the potentials. But when we are dealing with a world where uh, the probabilities are very small or the particles are very small, that kind of reasoning breaks down. And you have to be able to, uh, un you have to own your position and own your viewpoint in order to, to make a measurement and to act. Uh, and that action is very hard to justify in the front end. But honestly, I think that's what a lot of entrepreneurship is anyway, right? Uh, because you, you have to be willing to, to act under, under deep uncertainty. And what I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that uncertainty, there are degrees of uncertainty, but then when it comes to the kind of social shifts that we're looking at over the next 10, 20 years, there are, there are also like kinds of uncertainty. And we're dealing with a situation now, I think, where the future is much, much bigger than the past. And acting into this uncertainty requires the ability to be a fool. And of truth, goodness, and beauty, beauty is the one that has the greatest permission for foolishness. Totally, totally. That's all I got. Um, yeah, but I, I think they, they all still fit within the, the context of what I'm saying. It's like fundamentally the thread that ties you know, each of them is economic in nature. It's just a difference in time frame. Like, like you just sort of said, you know, beauty is the one that allows for um, a greater time frame where you can, you know, make mistakes and discover and kind of like me and Brandon Quinton were talking about a process of like um, explore versus exploit as um, as the process through which human beings and evolution, everything kind of grow and find something worth, you know, doubling down on, do that and then, you know, continue to grow again in multiple directions and double down on, you know, truth, for example. So, yeah, it, I, I just... I'm just pointing out that um, we should not kid ourselves that there is um, that there is some economic reasoning, irrespective of the time scale, um, uh, that is a driver. See, I agree with that, but so let, let me let me use this example. Right, we've got shitcoiners, and we tell them over and over and over again, like, look, this may look like it's for your best economic interest, but it's not. <laughs> But they're like, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make bank. I'm gonna ride this up and sell it out, and I'm gonna, I want Bitcoin more than you do, so I'm gonna take the risk, bro. You know, and we try to hammer in them, like, look, 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 we're doing this for the good of humanity because Bitcoin is a tool that's gonna enable freedom for the next generation to get us out of the enslavement of the state system. So pursuing goodness here, rather than the immoral option, which is shit coins, which is continuing the monetary extraction from the hype of human stupidity is what enables them to be in the place of protecting their economic interests best. But in a sense, sometimes what it looks like to those guys in their immaturity is pursuing goodness of looking at Bitcoin as the moral option rather than investing in the scam coins like ETH in pursuing good is actually sacrificing what they think is in their economic best interest. 
So this alignment here of pursuing the higher order often feels like a death of the lower order in order to actually pursue right. taking care of both. Yeah, until you until you wake up and align these dimensions in yourself. And then it doesn't. Yeah. Exactly. So having maturity requires often feeling like you're killing one of the lower ones. But ultimately, it's aligning all of them by pursuing the highest. Mm. I, want, I want to pass it to Uni now. Yeah, she's been waiting for a little bit. Thank you. Um, I don't want to derail the conversation or the topics that you guys were just talking about, but I, I wanted to go back to, I guess, the subject matter of the difference between how crafts and arts look in, I guess, monarchies and aristocracies versus in democracies. And just to add on to, I think Michael mentioned or started on with like legacy and having a longer term uh, time incentive. But I think that two other factors is um, having a single point of leadership as well as some form of mythology, as opposed to, I think the point that Michael made before was, um, I guess, the belief in God. I would go a bit broader than that, just based on what I see, I guess, in historical events that lead to, you know, mass periods of artistic flourishing etc I would say that it's actually more myth mythology that's embedded in or shaping you know creation um, and I, I I don't know if this is a good example it's a weird one and I guess this is more fashion rather than art but with like um, France or the big French luxury brands so thinking of like uh, Louis Vuitton, uh, Louis Vuitton um, all of those basically, um, they actually find their roots in French historical uh, royalty. So with the the king, uh, I think it was Louis the Fourteenth, he called himself, so that was a, a big monarchy, and um, he he's, he's famously said that the state is me. That was, there was very much a single point of leadership. And I think what you have in that is that monarchies are able to be very self-serving with no pretensions about serving the people or being in the service of the greater good. The difference with democracies is that you don't have that. You have like, I, I guess where leadership occurs is that it's supposed to represent the people. And so with uh, Louis XIV, he actually was a lover of art and a lover of fashion and in that period it was very important how your how your image was projected not just to your own uh, i guess citizens or citizenry but also internationally internationally as well so he had a lot of patronage of like uh, fashion houses and um, I think one interesting fact was that, or, or a fun fact, is that he actually issued a decree at the time that shoes with red soles, like red bottoms, could only be worn by the king's courtiers. And that's what we see like with today with Louboutins and et cetera. And I think that perhaps some of this discussion might also benefit from, from stronger definitions. like. With the, the question that was asked before about whether beauty is subjective, I, I definitely think it is because I actually think we've seen the transformation of art as opposed to the complete elimination of it. So I would actually argue that today with like Instagram, for instance, that is that could be argued to be art. And what we see with that is that it's individuals perhaps being egotistical, but that's their definition of what art is what we saw in historical terms or even in modern terms, because I think one thing we shouldn't forget is that monarchies still exist. So with Dubai, for instance, or the United Arab Emirates, that's a monarchy, mon that's a, um, sorry, that's run by a monarchy. 
And that's why they're able to build. I mean, I don't know if any of you guys have been to Dubai, but it's very, it's a very futuristic city. Technically, it's kind of built by slave labor, but that ability to have that single point of leadership and mobilizing resources to be deployed towards a singular aim shouldn't be underestimated. And that's what we see with the reverse with uh, democracies is that I guess each of us individually can create and partake in our own forms of art. And that's whether you, you know, think that, that that's art or not. I, I think it's a very cheap form of art, um, but I guess that's debatable. But that's all I wanted to say. Thank you, Yuni. That was um that was really good. I think I I agree with everything that you mentioned about the um, you know, so 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 I guess th this kind of ties into earlier I was saying um you know, a monarch is able to project uh, force, project will across their territory far more effectively. And, you know, what you just mentioned there in terms of fashion art and everything is kind of like, you know, manifest in that sense. And it's, um, it's you know, more pointed, etc. cetera. Um, I, I, I would say you said beauty was subjective. And, and again, I would kind of disagree with that. I think art is subjective. I don't think beauty is subjective. Um, I think beauty is both subjective objective and intersubjective and I, I don't know if you were here during that part of the conversation but I think beauty seems to like bridge all of it um because you know we we kind of if beauty was purely subjective like that you you couldn't line up people to look at nature for example or a good looking person or whatever um you know across time um and be in awe of it so so beauty has seems to have some sort of objective qualities which are you know very hard to like put your finger on art though uh is i think definitely subjective um and then whether the art is beautiful or not um is you know a different question so i think they're two different things yeah i think important thing that's interesting with the whole beauty objective versus subjective thing mm -hmm. is that beauty also only really exists in the experiencing of it it's like something can be beautiful, but it doesn't really incarnate that nature of itself until it's really being unveiled and experienced. So that's where we feel that kind of funny tension between the two. Go ahead, Moist. Oh, I'm actually good. I'm, I'm, uh, I thought that the, uh, I don't know where she went. She took off. But um, yeah, I'm just actually going to kind of think on what she said. You guys can go ahead. Got anything else you want to add here, Svetsky? No, other than I mean, she was she was definitely accurate around her position on um on why art, you know, sort of well, her points just I mean about Louis Vuitton and you know where that emanated from, etc. I think you know that th those points were on point, um, and the um the description around like why that same level of care, um doesn't exist in a democracy it's like so so louis vuitton and i don't know the history here but you know if that was a extension of louis the king's personal brand you know he's going to take a lot more care in what that's going to represent whereas if you're a democratic uh representative of a democratic republic i don't think you really give a fuck um you know what anything represents because you know you have again no skin in the game it's not your capital it's not your property it doesn't matter um and that point i think is um really relevant like th th this is something as well that um you know hopper argues is like you know a, a reason why a monarchy is also more functional is that 
if you don't like the king, you know, you, you have a concentrated point um, that which you can you, you can bring it down, you know, and so you just kill the fucking king um, and you can really uh, change things. Whereas, you know, democracy is very hard to do. Um, and as it decays, um, you know, it's, it's quite difficult to stop. But yeah. Hey, can I, um, I got a question for you, Svetsky. So okay. you keep on, so you're harping on this um, idea that in democracies, um, you know, there, it's not your, it's not your capital, so you don't really give a fuck what happens, and <clears throat> so you know nothing really valuable or beautiful gets produced. Um, but, but my question is, so I understand with the monarchy, right? You can take your capital, the, the economic energy, and you can direct it towards actually producing something um, of value, you know, whatever you find to be beautiful, um, and so you can commission artists to do that. But in a democracy. I'm curious, why is it? So what is it about a democracy? We don't have that concentration, that centralized concentration of power through capital in a democracy, or I mean, we do, but uh, to some extent. But why is it that artists aren't inspired to produce beautiful things? I mean, they do have the free will to do it. So what is it about a democracy specifically that doesn't inspire like specific individuals to produce art? I think it's multifaceted. So one answer would be the culture piece, right? So as the culture deteriorates, um, you know, people, I mean, like, it's not that we have an absence of art. We've got a whole lot of fucking art and we've probably got more art than we've never had in the world. Um, but you know, the, the art again is a, is by in many ways a reflection of, um, of the times. And like, you know, we have fiat art because we live in a fiat age and, you know, we're sticking bananas on a wall and we're, we're calling it art. So it's like, so I think that's one element. I think also the piece around like patronage, um, you know, is non-existent. Like if you're, uh, you know, a representative leader, doesn't matter, president, prime minister, whatever the fuck you are, um, you know, if you're coming in for four years or eight years or whatever, there's no way you're going to undertake a project that might take 20, 30, 40 years uh, to, to produce. You're not gonna, you're not gonna be a patron, first of all, because um, it's not your money, so you're not allowed to. But, you know, notwithstanding that, like, uh, even if you were allowed to, you don't have the time frame to do it. Whereas, you know, a monarch, you know, is there for a long time. It's his private property. He wants to make the most of it. He wants to make it beautiful. Um, you know, he wants to pass it on to his children, etc. So, so it's like you have a completely different um, uh, motivation and inspiration to to do it. And I think that that's why. So it's a blend of those two things. It's culture is fucking deranged, and you know, there's no patronage because you just can't do it in a system does that answer yeah yeah that answers um curious is the, is the culture culture deranged because of democracy or is it deranged because of fiat currency uh it's it's a mixture mm -hmm. man i think um like i think we're in a in a interesting period because see democracy was able to flourish alongside um you know the kind of enlightenment values particularly around the preservation of private property and the and also that mixed with um the discovery of uh new sources of energy particularly like oil and electricity etc and, and that kind of really uh, allowed society to scale up and i i think democracy was a necessary evil in many ways because we kind of had to go through this we had to figure shit out um and 
you know, same, same as fiat money, like it was a necessary evil. It was something we had to go through. We we're never going to get to, we were never going to go from gold to energy money. Like we we're going to go from gold to uh, paper issued against gold to paper issued against nothing to digital bits and bytes to Bitcoin. Like, so, so that progression kind of had to happen. And the, the combination of both uh, seems to be quite lethal and it seems to be eroding all the capital that we've um, built over centuries and millennia, basically. Um, and it's and it's deforming into strange ways. Like, you know, fiat basically creates a system whereby value judgments can't be accurately made. So as a result, we are all sinning. Um, and in sinning, we are all um, deranging the culture. And then democracy also uh, creates a tyranny of the lowest common denominator, which in its bid to try and be inclusive and try and like, you know, cater for the, you know, the, the masses, what it does is necessarily um, creates a system whereby um, the incompetent, which there is always more of, get the same voice as the competent, which there is always less of. And then you end up having the incompetent carry the competent, sorry, the competent carry the incompetent. Um, so, so you've got these kind of two forces. It's never one or the other. It's like a mixture of all of this shit. And it's, it's basically just one big clusterfuck at the end of the day. Go ahead, Moise. So, uh, Something I wanted to add to that, uh, there's there's a guy I listen to from time to time, uh, kind of in the macro space, whatever. His name is Russell Napier, and he has this uh, this interesting comment he made about the the transition period between like monarchies and democracies. So you know you know within the last century or a century ago, and he basically said that uh, you know prior to the transition, basically the, what you have is you know uh, the aristocrats, the barons, the king, etc they uh, you know they've got a surplus they're not in debt but the lower rungs of society which make up the um, you know the highest percentage of the uh of whatever country you're in whatever city etc they're they're usually in you know perpetually in debt uh hoppe actually talks about he, he quotes mises and he talks about um and it sounds bad but he talks about how you know the the masses and so forth are essentially you know filled with gamblers degenerates the lazy etc and uh going back to russell napier what he basically said was that uh when you introduce universal suffrage into a system what happens is that uh, all the capital has been accumulated at the top with the aristocracy and when you give the people at the bottom the ability to vote they vote away all of the resources that have been accumulated at the top. So you transition the deployment of those resources towards the ends that the, the envious, the slothful, the, the non-creative, et cetera, to, towards their ends. And in essence, it, it basically, you know, it just destroys, it destroys your capital base for, for, for one, but uh, you know, from there uh, it's, it's, you've got your capital base and, and I'd say culture is possibly downstream from from the capital base and all of a sudden you know you end up where we are today so fucking true dude you just fucking nailed it that is like i couldn't stop pressing the 100 percent thing like dude that is that is exactly like universal suffrage was like the greatest fucking mistake ever um you know ah oh, anyway i i could sort of go on a mad rant there like particularly like um you know yeah just giving 
all the lemmings the vote was a fucking disaster what we did was we created a long tail of lemmings <laughs> it fucking destroyed the world holy shit faith i think you were going to say something was that to me my my mic cut out for a second yeah, I think you were going to say something. I think I, I thought I saw your hand up. Sure, sure. So um, an interesting corollary that I've been thinking about in regards to how this plays out with Bitcoin, and uh, I'm going to try to keep this short because I know there are people who want to speak, um, is the uh, is that as, as the world hyper-Bitcoinizes, the lines around what people think of as democracy and what people think of as monarchy will begin to dissolve as people realize the, the underlying truths of this conversation. If this makes sense. So what what I'm saying is that like I don't envision myself as a king, but I do envision myself as a king, right? And and like all the farmers and the ranchers and the small business owners that I'm trying to orange pill on a day by day basis, they're they absolutely think of themselves as Democrats in a lowercase D sense, right? That they that is that they respect the sovereignty of their neighbors, okay, and the people they do business with, but they think of themselves as monarchs when it comes to what's going on in terms of their household. Right. So they think of themselves as having full private property rights and authority to deploy their own capital. Um, and I think what we're going to see is a convergence of those two kinds of reasoning around a much more uh, robust system that's going to be able to address these, these perennially political questions um, in, in a much more healthy way. Uh, as to whether we call that democracy or not, I think is a narrative question. Uh, and, and I'm, a, you know, I'm okay with making a polemical definition about it, but I think, I think the truth will out. I'll leave it there. Yeah, dude, I, I think that's a very, very good observation. I, I mean, I personally don't think we'll um, call it uh, democracy because I just don't think that, um, you know, that that definition can be stretched anymore. Um, but t t to me, what I kind of envision is. Um, like I've said this many times, it's like the, the rise of kings, lords, and nobles. Um, once again, it's like the rise of a natural elite. And I'm fundamentally an elitist. Um, and and in, the, in, the, in the healthy sense is like, I actually think, and you know, only a real elitist would say that, right? But like, right. I actually, I think um, w when I think of the word elite, um, and, and I honestly think it's been co-opted by the fucking parasites, is that when I think of the word elite, I think of a Hussein Bolt or a Bruce Lee or a Murray Rothbard or, you know, like a fucking George Washington. Like I think of the best of the best, right? So it, it like to, to be elite is to be exceptional um, at something. And, and I wrote a whole piece about this before I really kind of dug into Austrian economics. So I'd like, I've always had this sort of feeling because I've always tried to be an outperformer um, in my own personal life, whether it's in dimensions of business or whatever the fuck I've done, I've always tried to be elite i've always tried to be a one percenter um and for me like what bitcoin will do is that it'll enable those people the producers the elites and everything to continue to compound uh their wealth and then to be able to project their will across larger territories so so kind of what the, the future that i see is is a world in which we have kind of the rise of the ceo king is that that individual who operates the territory um, in the most uh, economically feasible, beautiful, low time preference way, who defends it appropriately, etc., uh, will win out, um, and there won't be an institution to bail out 
poor behavior. So it's kind of like, again, I, I see this as the rise of um, a new natural elite. And there's going to be a whole lot of motherfuckers who are ignorant, stupid, unlucky, etc. that, you know, never got any Bitcoin that will naturally have to work for them. But they'll have the possibility to rise. So like me, me and Mark Moss wrote about this. Um, you know, we just we just wrote a book together called uh, Best Fucking Name Ever. It's called The Uncommunist Manifesto. Um, so we're going to we're going to release that. Uh, in the next month or two but basically we 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 discussed in there this idea of um the the difference between uh fixed uh hierarchies um and uh dynamic hierarchies and and dynamic hierarchies are basically hierarchies of competence because competence varies and changes and adapts and shifts over time um so so what you want is you know, you want these kind of permeable classes um, in your society where people can actually move up and they can actually fall. Um, and, and that's a real Telebian sort of idea as well, I think, in many senses. Right, right. That, um, so, so anyway, that, that's where, where I, you know, I think you'll have the, the rise of nobles, the rise of, uh, you know, CEO kings. Um, and I know, for example, like, you know, I'm personally accumulating Bitcoin so that I can build my own little fucking empire where I can be a fucking mini dictator. And I can call the shots um, and impose my will across my territory. And I will do so insofar as it fucking makes sense with other private property owners um, and do it so that it makes um, economic sense. But, you know, I'm held accountable because guess what? My fucking Bitcoin is precious. Um, so is my territory. And I don't want to fucking lose it or burn it and fuck it up. So like, and I, think, I think I think what saves your point of view is also the fact that I've heard you say this in other places. So I'm going to, I'm going to say it and tell me if I'm, if I'm misrepresenting you that, uh, that, that you have a clear sense of what counts as a valid contract that you can enter into with another private property owner. I think there are many unscrupulous people who don't have that sense, who will lose out in this kind of world and who should be losing out today. Uh, totally, totally, right. totally. And, and that's like, th th this is where we sort of get all the sovereign individual part in it is that like the, the, the returns on violence start to change, right? On a Bitcoin standard, like, you know, the, the, the Bitcoin is the most valuable piece, but that's also the hardest to steal. Um, so therefore you want, you, you know, you're going to over time and, and this isn't going to happen tomorrow. I actually think we're going to have to go through a phase of a whole lot of theft and damage and fuckwits and all this sort of stuff over the next decade, um, maybe even two decades, whatever, so, so that we can kind of emerge on the other end uh, when like that return on violence uh calculus catches up and people realize that hey you know it doesn't make sense to just fucking steal it from someone you have to do it now that also again when it comes to um you know contract like contract enforceability is important so you know the capacity to defend yourself um you know is extremely important and again you can only project that uh capacity or project that force you know across a certain distance and across a certain time so like there, right. there's like economic limits to that there's also honor limits to it as well, mm -hmm, right? Because mm -hmm. you, you want to enter into contracts with people who you respect as sovereign individuals as well. 100%. And if you enter into a contract with someone and you demand something of them, which, which you know you would never assent to as a sovereign individual, regardless of like how many Bitcoin you could be offered for it. Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm, like, like mm -hmm. how many restaurants do I not go to now, for instance? Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. you, you couldn't pay me to eat your food, you yeah. know? And, and yeah. yeah, I may have gotten married there and, and too bad. Right. Like this happens if you if you if you extend beyond the bounds of honor, let alone the bounds of force. Right. Your contract becomes uh, useless. And I think I think totally. that, that. Yeah, I'll leave it there.
No, very, very, very beautifully put. Um, all right, I'm going to shut up to Moist. Over to you. Quick, real quick, um, can you guys expand on that a little bit? Um, are you saying that you're doing you're doing business and contracts with people who you align with morally? And uh, yeah, no, actually, I'm not. Okay, I mean, I sort of am. But what what I'm saying is, even in areas where we don't align morally or where it's not obvious how that alignment is going to fall out. I'm not going to ask of them to humiliate themselves before me as though I'm some sort of overlord of them, that I, get, that I get to strip them of their individuality because no one could pay me for that. So why would I ask it of someone else? And that's, that is what I'm saying is that today, I think people, people take that responsibility and then mentally outsource it to the state. Okay? They say it's the state's job to intercede for the weak. It's the state's job to like, uh, determine which contracts are valid and invalid. And I'm sorry, but like in 20 years, that responsibility will be on us. Okay, so so there has to be like an interior examination of oneself as a sovereign actor among other sovereign actors, which, by the way, is the only polemical definition of democracy I will ever accept. Right. Um, I reject all other definitions. Um, so, so. So, yeah, that's what I'm trying to describe. Like, even when the morals aren't obvious, like when, OK, maybe maybe such and such a restaurant thinks it has a moral obligation to ensure that everyone who's you know, been there has injected themselves with such and such chemical. Like, they, they may think that, and that may be within their private property rights, but I will never enter into that contract with them, and I would never ask someone else to enter into that contract with them. Not because someone would stop me, but because I can stop me, because I am a sovereign individual who understands the honor bounds of what kinds of contracts are acceptable and unacceptable. Well, I, I think also just to extend to that is, like, honor starts to become, um, you know, I mean, honor is... Uh, a manifestation of honor is reputation, um, and that starts to have its own um, benefits. In a sense, like in the absence of uh, a central authority, reputation starts to become extraordinarily important. You know, it starts to become a currency of its own. So, so like you start to build that, and I think that's also you know the genesis of chivalry and things like that. You know, um, where those sorts of um, behaviors start to uh, start to reemerge when the Existence of an economic consequence exists. Um, sorry, that's the right discrimination has consequences. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, anyway, th Mike, did that help? Or you were, I'll go ahead and go. Um, so, it's interesting too, there, right? Because if I like what you were saying, Faith, about asking somebody to do something that's humiliating, if I saw Svetsky doing that to somebody else, I would be less likely to enter into a contract with him as well. Right, right. So this got the third party matters. Yeah, it's got this in, intrinsic balancing mechanism, right? But it's it's once again one of those places where you're prioritizing something beyond just purely economic rationality in the moment. Um, like, like, for example, the Industrial Revolution when it first came to Japan. Japan had a very interesting culture, like the, uh, like the samurai. The samurai didn't view honesty as a virtue in and of for its own sake. They viewed dishonesty as a negative because they saw it as an example of cowardice. So there was no prioritization Ooh. of honesty for the sake of building trust, right? So when the Industrial Revolution first came to Japan, their merchant class really, really had some messes happen because they were very dishonest in their dealings with the outside world. And so the outside world stopped transacting with them. And they learned very rapidly that you have to be honest for honesty's sake because if you don't, you exclude yourself from economic participation and business deals with the other parties. So it had this balancing mechanism that actually, through submitting to goodness, it actually gave you the chance to be a part of the economic community. 
You want to go ahead, Moist? Oh no, no, I'm uh, I'm good. I I because Michael, you did say I, I don't mean to hijack the conversation, but Michael, you did say that uh, there's some people that had some questions. Yeah, I don't know how you guys feel about opening up the floor, but uh, the requests are they're not there now. But I know we oh. did have some requests. <laughs> I can just open up the floor. Let's see if anyone wants to say anything. Otherwise, All right. Um, right, we've been running for almost two hours. Yeah, we can uh, we can close it up by opening up the floor. I got to get going soon. So uh, if anyone has anything they want to say, just send a request and we'll bring you up on stage. Say or ask. Yeah, well, we're waiting uh, a, a good if, if anyone in the audience has a, uh, you know, maybe some some counterexamples to uh, to monarchy where they, you know, they said, hey, you know, here's an example of democracy. Here's an example of you know, beauty created under democracy, these sorts of things, those would be uh, probably, I know, uh, belligerent, I see you in there, you had some, you know, different things that you were saying earlier today. Moist, I, I did read your essay on uh, on lending and interest rates. Was that was that you that sent that article? Yeah, the 13th century, probably. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, um, that connection there between sound money and producing beautiful art, it kind of goes into the conversation that we've been having that, um, I guess, culture is downstream from economics. Um, is that is that like a prerequisite then to, to build these beautiful things? It's, it's really interesting because, you know, you know, obviously the today's discussion is kind of a uh, monarchy v. Um, democracy type of, of conversation, but one of the other things you see as uh, or that i've noticed as you go through time is that the the places at least at least for me that i associate with like you know kind of uh, pristine art beauty etc for example the uh, the 1400s and 15th century um you had uh at that time in europe you had uh the the florentines and the venetians well the venetians would have been a little earlier but What's interesting is that they both struck, uh, you had the Venetian ducat and you had the uh, Florentine florin. And these were, you know, these coins lasted centuries. They circulated throughout Europe for centuries. Um, and uh, I, I've always found that that kind of interesting that the, uh, and, and those two cultures, I mean, well, when you talk about Venice, they basically controlled the entire um eastern part of the Mediterranean, all their trade routes went all the way up into, uh, you know, modern day Ukraine, into the Black Sea, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you know, and that was just a city state and uh, they were a uh, military power. Um, you know, Marco Polo was a Venetian, went out into the uh, uh, Mongol Empire and so forth. And then, um, you know, when you look at the Florentines, my goodness, uh, you... <laughs> I'm just going to rattle off some people that were, you know, Florentines. Da Vinci was a Florentine, Donatello, Brunelleschi, uh, Machiavelli, uh, the guy that created double entry bookkeeping, Florentine. And it's just, it's just very interesting to me that Michelangelo is also Florentine. It's just very interesting to me that uh, these, these, these places in time that uh, have created, you know, some of the greatest contributions to mankind also had, you know, very, very good money. The same is true with the Roman Republic and certainly with ancient Greece. And um, I, I just find that, you know, very, very fascinating.
Um, and it, it does hold all the way through, you know, the Dutch Republic and, uh, you know, England and uh, so forth. If anyone wants to go ahead. I was just, just going to say that, that that I think is extraordinarily true. Um, I think that that makes a whole lot of sense. I think when you know you have good money, people can make good value judgments and off the back of good value judgments, um, you can create more complexity and off the back of more complexity, you know, like assuming that it's still tied to a mechanism to make good value judgments, you can start to move up Maslow's hierarchy. You can start to create, you start to focus, you can start to aim higher basically and you can be more far-sighted and in doing so, you start to think more about beauty, which is a longer time preference process. So like all of that sort of stuff stems all from having um, a means via which the product of our labor can be stored and traded um, in high fidelity, basically. So anyway, I think that's very, very accurate. Belligerently, you want to go? Yeah, by all means. Uh, so Moise kind of brought it up that I threw out a few questions out there. I uh, just kind of want to go over those real quick, um, but then deviate from those because something Sessi said informed those questions a little bit more. Uh, so the questions I brought up were for the monarchy time periods in regards to art. Do we have a little bit of survivorship bias where we just have the best examples of art from those time frames, whereas also in the modern times of democracies, we still have every little piece of crap art remaining that are ultimately going to get uh, thrown into the rubbish bin of history. But when Sessi was talking about the virtuous monarchy versus the retarded monarchy, and that the virtuous monarchy typically was one of competency, one in the trials of the nation forming or defending the nation, that got me thinking of the United States, and I'm belligerently American. I spent eight years in the Marine Corps. Um, the founding of the U.S., many people wanted George Washington to be the king of the United States, but they were just coming out of a retarded monarchy period and wanted nothing to do with that. And also at that point in time, you actually did have to be a landowner, and for that point in time in the U.S., that basically meant you – knew something about running a farm and basically meant something about running something successfully in order to vote. And so in a lot of the same skin ways the that skin in the game, exactly. In a lot of the same ways, Svetsky was talking about the skin in the game of the uh, monarchy that earned their place. That was a lot of the same at the founding of the United States. And just like it was saying, universal suffrage, that chipped away with that over time. I mean, U.S. senators used to be appointed by the states themselves, not voted by the people. And actually, the duration of tenure in the U.S. Congress greatly exploded when that occurred. Yeah, I think, well, I mean, to your point, like, suffrage fucked a lot of it up. Um, but, you know, I think I think Hopper makes an argument. It's like, um, it was kind of, even though it started on good foundation it was a kind of it was tilted in the slightly 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 wrong direction um that it ended up kind of devolving into that um and because there was nothing to um and it's it's not it's not a 
you know, me poo-pooing anything um, in terms of the, the founding fathers, it's like in that context, that was the absolute fucking best version that was possible, right? Um, you know, there were, Bitcoin didn't exist. <laughs> like there was no way to um, exactly rein, rein anything in. So it's like we, we have that opportunity now with Bitcoin. So we can, you know, and I've, I've kind of said many times not to, you know, blow smoke up our asses to make us sound too grandiose, but we're, we're sort of like, this generation of Bitcoiners, the ones that are alive now, like the ones and us that are kind of building this, we're the kind of the new incarnation of the founding fathers. We're, we're unfortunately going to have to like swim through all the shit during the transition, but we're the ones who are actually going to found the next iteration um, of history. But, you know, and, and our children are going to be the ones that get to actually, um, you know, start building a base on top of that. And then their children are the ones who are going to really like fucking accelerate and do things that you know we've only dreamed of but um so svetsky is so let me see if i got this right are you saying that we basically <clears throat> so democracy and fiat currency is basically our way of failing to success is that a yes. good way of phrasing it yeah i think that's a very good way of phrasing it it's like it's a it's a thing that we had to go through like bitcoin was inevitable and the clusterfuck that we've had to get through like i often ask myself this question it's like um if a Bitcoin standard is where we want to get to. Uh, am I willing to pay the price of clown world to get there? And the answer is yes. So, clown world, unfortunately, had to happen. All right. Does uh, Tizzy, what's up? Do you want to say something? Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. So I <clears throat> was thinking about you know, what, what about a society? What about a culture drives the desire to create beautiful art? And it, it seems to be more so, at least in my opinion, and I'm no, by no means well-read on the subject as far as histories of monarchies and the art created and so on. But it seems to me that it all stems from culture. If you have a culture that values beauty, that values the true and the good, then given the the leeway and, and and the patronage to create art that type of you know beautiful true good art that survives till today will be created now in democracies i don't know if i'm uh mistaken or not but i i'm sure there have to be at least a couple of good pieces of art to come out of democracy so how how do does the monarch truly influence the culture or is it something more intrinsic to human nature? It seems to me that those that follow the path of uh, call it, you know, of God, of the true, the good, and the beautiful, they they will have a yearning in their souls and their spirit to create good and beautiful art to reflect the beauty of the world that they cannot put into words. Not everyone is a poet, and it seems also seems to me that the tyranny that has been experienced by humans over the millennia is baked into the cake so to speak it, it seems to be required we need that that rough stone to sharpen ourselves against we need we need that 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 tension we need to push back against something in order to get to the next level so i guess in essence um how do you think and this is up for anyone how do you think the the broader culture influences the production of art and is there an intrinsic element in the human spirit and if so is that squashed 
under tyrannical regimes or is it blossomed and then is able to flower during uh you know more stable regimes and that's the end of my statement does anybody want to take that up uh Ch chase was first yeah i'll i'll take that um What's up, Michael? What's up, Joel? What's up, everyone? So I'm going to I'm going to tie this into what we were talking about earlier, too, because there is there's a debate that was going on about whether or not beauty is subjective or if it's objective. And I think when you have a tyranny, you, you have a society that is fundamentally out of alignment with the truth. And I think that when you have a society that is in alignment with the truth and in harmony with the truth, I think that good art is going to emerge because I think beauty is, in fact, objective in most ways. And I think when you have bad art, um, you know, it's 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 objectively bad. We can look at, you know, shitty art and it's like, oh, this doesn't feel good. Versus when you look at a painting that expresses the the passion between two lovers, for example, anybody can objectively see that that is good. And I think that. I think the reason why I would make the case that that beauty is objective is because I think beauty, you know, when you look at a beautiful person, someone with facial symmetry, when you look at a beautiful physique, someone who's, you know, developed their musculature or a woman with a, a very well-developed body, that what you're looking at is something that's in alignment with universal principles that align with the golden ratio and the Fibonacci sequence. And as a Christian, I believe that that ratio is, is God's signature within the universe. And I believe that that, that is underlying and is at, at the core foundation of what beauty is. And I think that the further you stray from those universal principles of truth, beauty, love, goodness, I think that you know, you're going to produce ugly things. And when you have a tyranny and you have a society that's living under that tyranny and you have a society that's crooked in its orientation to the truth, I think that that will bleed into everything. And that's why you see entire societies become corrupted by things like communism. And that's why you see the West, which has been dominated by Christianity for the past 2000 years and which has 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 created a beautiful world. You see so many good works come from that. And so I, I think I think that alignment with those divine underlying principles is what actually creates that beauty. And I think that is very objective. So I guess that would be my answer. Okay. Hey, uh, yeah, good question, uh, Tizzy. Um, so kind of like earlier, we talked a little bit about how uh, de democracy creates a, a culture of short-termism. Whereas, uh, you know, when you have an aristocracy, it's a culture of, for lack of a better, I don't even know if this is a word, but long-termism. And as such, and I, I think there's an element of ego in there. So I'll just use an example. Like if you talk about like the, uh, the House of Medici, you know, in uh, 15th century Florence, um, they, it seems very clear that when they, you know, they're big patrons of, of, of all the famous um, artists. Uh, again, Brunelleschi, who, who created the, the first domed church there in Florence, um, uh, Donatello with his sculpting, uh, Michelangelo, um, uh, Botticelli, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, inside of their, uh, the, the Palazzo di Medici, they have uh, this, this really famous kind of panel painting that took, you know, a long time to, uh, to, to paint. 
And I, I think, you know, there, again, there is a little element of ego like that, but, the, but they're looking long term. They want people in the future to essentially know, hey, you know, the Medici were here. Whereas when you think of like modernity and the short termism, you know, yes, there's still the element of ego, but all they're really concerned about is, you know, marketing themselves in the present. Hey, am I getting getting attention now? There's just no focus towards uh, longer term type stuff. They don't really care if their quote unquote art uh, lasts. Uh, so, so I think, you know, having some sort of system of monarchy, again, produces that long termism. And so the desire to kind of, you know, scream out to posterity, hey, you know, the Medici were here and we were great, etc. Uh, that just doesn't really cross the mind of the people who are just, uh, you know, living in today's world of democracy, where, you know, they just want to get theirs while they're while they're here, and they don't really care what happens in the future. I don't know if that makes sense. Well, I know that. Well, I know that. Fine. Whoa. <clears throat> yeah, so Moist, that makes total sense. Tizzy, uh, do you want to go ahead there? It's... Yeah, sorry about that. I had to get out of the room with people in it. Um, yeah, that, that actually makes total sense. Um, so the I, I agree with you in that it seems like artists, if they have to those that feel the drive to create, create art, you know, things like that. If they have to spend their days looking for, <clears throat> you know, trying to feed themselves, find the money to feed themselves, then they can't be expected to really release that art in the most, um, I guess, nature accordance way possible. So it seems to make sense that it comes down to the monetary system and the values of those that are in control of the monetary system. If you have like the Medici's back in Leonardo's time where they didn't cut their gold, they, they maintained a steady currency, at least to my understanding, then you can have a patron take on an artist, pay for their livelihood in order to create that art that they believe will live on through the centuries to carry their name down through the centuries. So it does seem to come down to time preference. And it is interesting that democracy seem to <clears throat> select for a low time preference since they want to keep people constantly searching for validation, money, things like that. So yeah, that's interesting. Just real quick, looks like Joel's mic uh, he, he needs back on stage. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, I have him here, but he's. It looks like he's frozen, and it looks like he's on stage, but I don't see him. Uh, like I can't. Let me see here. I'm gonna remove him, and then invite him back up. Okay, there we go. Now we got it. Tizzy, I just I wanted to say one thing in response to what you just said. You, you reminded me of a tweet that I saw recently from someone and what they said was, you know, in all great cultures of the past, people recognized that in order to actually create culture, you had to have leisure time for your citizens to really ponder, you know, the world and, and to ponder the consequences of things happening in society and to ponder the underpinnings of life and it's just, it's so true when you think about it from, you know, the fiat perspective, the, the more people that are engaged in the rat race and the more people that are trying to get ahead while their currency is constantly being debased, the, the, the greater the struggle is going to be for individual people to find that time to actually create culture. And um, yeah, I just, I, I was struck and by the greater how important 
I was struck by how important sound money is in that way. It's, it's such a good point. And the greater the lure of escapism on the part of those who consume the art. Can you expand on that? Well, in, in the sense that uh, the, the kind of art that you want in that kind of society, you're consuming during your limited periods of leisure, right? In a time when you're not coming to your own leisure with the energy to produce something that, that will energize others. You're coming to it w with needs alone. Um, and so, so what you want out of it is you want something that gives in to you and you're not thinking necessarily about the next step of like how you're going to invest your Sabbath back into the culture at large. I love that because when we think about democracy, right, we, we from, and from America tend to think about us as if we are a democracy, but we're not. We're a democratic republic, right? Like a true democracy, everybody's just voting. And so it's this competitive thing where everybody's trying to bash against one another to get their will accomplished. But if you think about this whole concept of as above, so below again, what happens in a kingdom is where you're choosing to kind of like uh, like all life comes from death, right? You're choosing to lay down a part of your will to consent to another to give them the authority to steward the well-being of the group as a unit rather than you competing against one another as singletons. And from that place, the king sets an example of service to where he's bringing giving to the community rather than receiving, right? So it creates a culture of everything, but like you're saying, faith of art, where you're not bringing needs to it to have to consume to feel better. You're actually bringing a desire to unveil something you see to give a gift into the world around you. But it flows from having first kind of done that mutual sacrifice of having created space for leadership of that to be created. Right. So um, as a high-end whiskey collector can confirm there, there's whiskey you drink to get drunk and it is not art, right? That, that is the, that is the, if you, if you were going to pick an example of what art looks like in that world, that's what it looks like. Right. And, uh, and, and on the other hand, when you have people who really invested in their trade over centuries, who really know what it is they're making, they're making something that even in your rejoicing and even in your overflow of abundance, you're still, you're still building, um, psychologically the ability to appreciate excellence. All right. Uh, I don't know who had their hands up. Tizzy, you want to go? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I find that interesting. So it, it also seems, you know, y you can have a, uh, a monarchy or hell, even a democracy where people get leisure time, but that still doesn't, you know, just granting an artist leisure time does not, you know, indicate that that artist will create something for the ages, something true and beautiful. So there seems to be a certain, I guess, sophistication in regard to the human spirit that must be present. Uh, you must, there must be time for people to discuss human nature, to discuss the human spirit, to discuss the true and the beautiful in order to provide, I, I guess, a sort of muse in order for that art to be created. So why do some societies exhibit that sophistication? Even under monarchy, some do, some don't. So is it truly due to the monarch? Is it monetary? So where does that sophistication derive from? I want to um, take that. This. Spetsy, go ahead. 
Okay. Um, I was just gonna say I tried to answer this one earlier about like, um, you know, manifestation of um of culture and the 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 patronage element, right? So it's like, um, cu culture and economics are like you know intertwined. Like again, it comes back to um, if your values, if if you're not able to orient. Um, if you're not able to make good value judgments, you can't orient. Um, and when you're poorly oriented, you know, the culture starts to get deformed. Um, but, you know, that's technically upstream from not being able to make um, accurate economic judgments. So it's like, so, so they're kind of, you know, they're, they're, they're really intertwined. Um, but when the culture deranges, like I, I, I'm pretty convinced that art is a, um, an uh, representation or an extension of, um, of of culture so when you when you have that um you end up getting a situation where the kind of art created is like nihilistic or pointless or meaningless or fiat like i mean nfts are actually a good example so like what what's happened with nfts is basically um an idea built on top of a i think my headphones died can everyone still hear me Yes, now. Yep. Okay. Um, now we can. So, so NFTs are a good example because um, you know you have you have a concept built on top of and a lie, um, with you know this sort of this uh, very very high time preference, um, get rich quick fucking narrative of you know quickly draw a fucking ape and anyone in the world can give you some money and you can sell it and then it'll pump and dump like so so you know that that's a perfect example of um uh, a culture built on top of a lie um that is kind of masquerading as art um and in reality producing not beauty but ugliness um and you know just becoming just one big fucking clusterfuck so i think Again, in in a in a monarchy, I think the culture is definitely influenced by the largest private property owner, which is generally the king, um, and his influence, particularly if it's a king who's come up through some level of um, of competence or soundness or shrewdness or valor or courage or bravery or whatever, um, you know that sort of stuff. In many ways, manifests. Um, in the in the culture but then you sort of add sound money to that um and you add like and again a good king will want to have uh more sound money so so it's like i i, I guess that then builds the argument that moist was making earlier so so that kind of feeds in so so they're related and then i think honestly the patronage piece is also very good is like when you're a patron you're genuinely looking for the best possible fucking artist um, to produce something. And that creates then a free, like a market for um, the best once again, to rise up, um, you know, through, through some competition. So I think it's, it's, it's a mixture of all those things that that's what I would sort of say. So, uh, -oh. uh, did I mute everyone? I might've muted everyone by accident. I hope that done. I was on accident. I tried to hit the mic and I muted it. <laughs> Um, I just want to jump in here and say, uh, I think Svetsky, your, your vision for the future is, uh, a bunch of like city states or monarchies or kingdoms. And, um, and I just want to say I align with that. And so I would imagine then we would have all types of different 
um, approaches to developing art and, you know, uh, trying to manifest beauty through that in the future, through this kind of sovereign individual future. Is, is, is that right? Yeah. And, and I, I guess basically the most beautiful wins. That'd be a good world. Like, imagine that. Like, instead of the, you know, the most fat, fucking ugly, you know, bureaucrat winning, like, let the most beautiful win. I think that's a, that's a great thing. So to go back to the topic, Svetsky, of the culture, I think it's the king's job to create that culture, right? Because in a democracy, there's nobody who's responsible for the stewardship of that. So like, like with a king, he has an inherent incentive to serve with honor those around him or he gets punished because he doesn't get to maintain that authority, right? Because it's that honor that he creates through serving everybody's best interest that enables the perpetuation of his power, right? Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that that's very true. And that's, again, why I call sort of this future like the, the CEO king is that in a business, surprise, surprise, who the fuck is in charge of culture? It's the CEO. And if the CEO doesn't set the fucking culture and work on the culture, um, the company deteriorates. And and as much as I hate fucking Andreessen Horowitz and all that sort of stuff, like um, uh, what's his name? Um, ben Horowitz. Um, he he wrote a book. I mean, he wrote the best business book that I think has ever been written, which is called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Um, that, I think, is the greatest fucking business book ever, ever, ever written. Um, but then he also wrote a recent one called um, uh, What You Do Is Who You Are. Um, it's a book about culture, and he takes a bunch of historic um, examples out, like um, the slave revolt in Haiti, um, which was the first and only successful slave revolt. Um, he takes Genghis Khan and a couple other sort of um, things, and he really just doubles down on culture. And um, it's such an important factor. And again, uh, in a monarchy, the culture is heavily influenced by the king. Um, and the king, you know, just like the owner of a house, you know, has some sort of pride uh, in how they want that um, culture to be perceived. Uh, whereas, um, yeah, in a democracy, basically, everyone's got their hands in their fucking pockets and they're all jerking each other off and, you know, culture kind of comes out as one big wank job. So I don't know. It's just weird. So yeah, I, I think I have this saying that my sage always tells me. He taught me this when learning how to do drums, like hand drum stuff. And it's that he could teach me all the articulations and sounds of the instrument. But in order to truly be a musician, you had to have a story inside worth telling, right? Yes. And I think it's important to recognize that art doesn't happen in a vacuum. Art is a demonstration of something you feel like you need to say and express, of revealing something to the world you feel they need to know, right? It's, it's a storytelling format, really, just through different languages. So it's like you can know the language well, but if you don't have something to say in it, it doesn't do any good. So when I talk about the stewardship by the king, part of what I mean when I say he's responsible for the culture, right? And so everybody's kind of done this little bit of almost like a death practice of allowing the king to have the authority of managing the goodness for everybody or bringing them together with cohesion. And he's serving everybody through the incentives he has to create a good world. Otherwise he gets punished and loses the authority. And so in that he's living out an example of that practice of kind of giving of himself to create life, right? It's kind of that little bit of almost that hero's journey. So in that he's telling a beautiful story 
and then beneath them other beautiful stories flourish. So it's his job to create this space where life itself can be experienced in a way that creates experiences of kind of that transcendent, mythic, truth, goodness, beauty that is worth telling stories about. So I think that's that key piece there where like it's not just having time that creates good art. It's having somebody vest themselves into creating a mutually shared story that's worth expressing in beautiful ways. Right. And um, I think this is kind of a pushback, but kind of an agreement that the, the projects that are being undertaken in this new political era are going to show us how many kings there are, if this makes sense. And, and there is, I think, in, in each person's disposition to how all this is going to play out, no small factor is one's optimism or pessimism about human nature and its preparedness for this challenge, right? Because, the, 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 Joel, within, within this framework you're talking about, you, you need your subjects to be little kings and, and, in some sense, to become their own kings, right? This is not a situation where that relationship is static. It's a situation where that relationship grows. And that growth is going to have to find its potential limits. We're going to, like, some of those things are going to be removed. Some of those limits are going to be removed and new ones are going to be found. And uh, I, I observe uh, a range of opinions among uh, the group of folks who are in the sort of Bitcoin hopian world about how far that's going to go. Yeah, so, so to that point, actually, and, and may, let me know if I'm touching on what you're saying, is like, I... The idea of like everyone being little kings is is an interesting one. I, I would have agreed with you a couple of years ago, but the more I've seen uh, Clown World um, evolve over the last two years in particular, um, the more I think that uh, some people have, um, I don't know, slavery in their DNA um, and they're never going to be fucking kings. Um, and that, you know, if anything, like the, you know, the Egyptians knew that and they put the slaves to good use. Like, you know, in a democracy, the slaves actually have power over the kings, which is kind of fucking backwards, if anything. So I don't know. I, I don't, no, I don't I think, think everyone you're, can You're speaking right to it and, and we disagree. But I'm yeah. open to being corrected by life experience, if, if you see what I'm saying. Yeah, like, I mean, go to, I think go to everybody, South America for a little while. Go live there. I think everybody does have slavery in their DNA, but I think everyone has the seeds of kingishness. But it's it. But the trick is what brings those forward and i think i think that's something that you that you know to borrow joel's expression you co-create with someone who's a little further along the journey yeah i don't know man it's a what i, I, I guess i've lost here. a lot of faith in the lemmings and i and i agree it, but we have this culture where everybody also it's like the jews coming out of egypt out of slavery where like they just have slavery ground into them where they want to be slaves right so the first thing we need is we need real kings to inspire everybody to actually believe it's possible again, right? To, like, get them dreaming. And what I would argue is the most powerful king is the person who can create the trajectory in the lives of the people around him of them moving on a vector towards increasing in kingliness. So it's like the nature of what makes him so powerful is that people align with him because he's capable of making the people beneath him more powerful. So they're always gaining greater dominion as a unit. Yeah, I mean, that does, I mean, that yeah. sounds nice though. And, and I don't know how realistic that is. I feel like we're kind of, it's, it's very easy to be intoxicated by the niceness of 
how that sounds. Um, and I just don't know how realistic it is because, you know, what you do is you make the gap for, um, you know, the incompetence. So I, I don't know, like there's, um, I, was, I, I did a really, 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 really fucking good podcast um, the other day with a guy called Rob Malka, who his fucking story was extraordinary, man. Like, so, so he's a, he's a, he's a pretty young kid. Uh, like he's around, um, I think, about to, to turn 30 and like he's got a really deep uh, background in philosophy but his early story was wild like he was born to two deaf parents who were both born deaf so like and, and we kind of like spent a whole hour and a bit like riffing on what that experience was like like imagine growing up as a kid like even down to like he explained how you know children for example when they cry you know, it's a signal for their parents to hear them. But imagine being a kid and you're fucking crying and your parents don't even hear you. Like, you know, and you spend fucking two, three, four, six, twelve 12 hours fucking crying. Like, wild fucking shit. And anyway, we, we had this whole conversation. You know, he brought up some stuff from Nietzsche who, you know, Nietzsche has this um, theory. And, and I, mind you, I haven't done enough reading on Nietzsche and, and any really. So I just went and fucking bought a bunch of his books. So I want to do some reading. But he has a whole theory that, like, humanity kind of started off as uh, masters and slaves. And the, one of the biggest differences between masters and slaves was this idea that the, you know, the master never carried any resentment. Like he was, um, he was superior genetically, biologically, um, and, you know, across multiple dimensions and, you know, stronger, better, faster, smarter, whatever. Um, and, you know, the, the, the slaves were sort of inferior. Um, and, you know, the, the master would never hold resentment. So like if something wrong happened or whatever, like, you know, the master would, you know, lash out instantly and like solve the problem. Um, so it's like if a slave, you know, tried to do something stupid or hit him or whatever, he just killed the slave and then just move on straight away. There was, there was no resentment. Like he didn't view the slave as um, good, bad or whatever. It was just like an indifferent, like you performed the wrong thing. So you're gone. Um, and the slaves, because they couldn't do that, um, they started to, you know, build a bunch of resentment uh, inside. Um, and, you know, they created this whole inner world. Um, and from that inner world, uh, which sort of stemmed from resentment, um, you know, they created politics. Um, and politics was a, a, a way for the slaves to revolt against the masters. And then in the process, um, you know, slave blood mixed with master blood and all this sort of stuff. So, so I, I don't know, like, it's like very high level overview, but, you know, me and Rob were kind of uh, discussing that as I don't know if it's it wasn't like a you know a story or you know what like I'm really just touching on you know the the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg there but I don't know man what, what I've sort of seen in the last two years like and you know like when we snuck into the matrix and watched that like the fourth matrix which mind you was the fucking worst movie ever made but like Everyone, all the people in the cinema wearing fucking masks and stuff like that. I swear to fucking God, there's something wrong with these people. Um, and like, you're not wrong. I, I agree with you about this. Yeah. Um, sorry. Can I say something? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay, good. You guys can hear me. Um, I, I'm jumping into this conversation in the middle of it. So you may have already addressed this, but I just wanted to say, I think one concept that is sort of being danced around in this conversation, but not explicitly addressed is that um, in a well-functioning political system with any type of constitution, whether it's a monarchy or a, or a democracy or a republic, um, your, your rights and your privileges 
need to be proportional to the responsibilities that you're willing to assume, right? And I mean, that's why benevolent monarchies work so well is because the king has absolute power, but he also has absolute responsibility for everything that happens in the kingdom. Um, and one of the things I notice in these conversations is that there's often a false dichotomy between democracy, uh, like full universal suffrage and, you know, something like a monarchy where one man is invested with uh, supreme authority. Um, you know, the other, the sort of middle ground is a system like the one that's outlined in Starship Troopers, which is a book that a lot of you have probably read, where basically oh, yeah. you get you get the full rights of citizenship if you agree to serve in the military, right? And I think the idea behind that is that you're weeding out the people um, who want rights with none of the responsibilities, right? Um, and, you know, it, it could be military service, it could be something else. But I do think there is a middle ground between these two systems that you've been discussing where you, you do enfranchise a larger class, but they're people who have, you know, proven that they don't have any conflicts of interest and um, they've given an honest signal that they're not going to engage in political parasitism, right? Right, which, which speaks, I think, to... Like, like when I made that offhand comment about we're going to find out how many kings there are, I was alluding to kind of the same, uh, the same dimension, which is you have only so far you can take this if you're not really willing to do the work. And at least, at least in, in this era to come that we hope and work for, the, the opportunity to get there by work will, be, will involve less uh, uh, political friction. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, the etymology of the word republic is res publica, which in Latin means, you know, the, the public thing. And what that actually meant was that the Republican government was the property of everyone who was a full citizen. Um, so it kind of blurs the distinction between the state on the one hand and the private sphere on the other that we sort of habitually think in terms of, right? Because right. the, the number, go ahead. I want to take your point and double it which is that if you ask the ancient Athenians not what they did, but what they thought they were doing, right? Like if you look to, to the speeches of Pericles or whatever, what they thought they were doing in democracy was they thought they were granting sovereignty to, to the to people, to individuals or households, right? And, and it was a claim about equality under the law and about, uh, about privileging no one by default. And then, of course, if you look at what they actually did, that's different, but... You see what I'm saying? I, so I'm doubling your point. I agree with you about the uh, about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, equality. But see, the interesting thing is that you can have um, equality before the law in a sense that, like, like I don't know. Let's say that if we we're gonna, if we were to take the modern United States as an example, you could have a system where everybody is protected by the Bill of Rights, for example, whether you're a full citizen or not. But there are additional requirements that have to be met if you are going to wield the instrument of sovereignty, which is the right to participate in the political process through voting. I mean, you know, in the United States, this had a problematic history, right? Because originally that line was drawn racially in part, which is something that I don't agree with. 
Um, but the general point is that we can think about like, what are the characteristics of a person who's capable of being sovereign? And I think the goal should be to enfranchise as many of those people as you possibly can. Because if sure. you have... Yeah. You know, I'm on board with you. Keep going. Well, if, if you have, if, if you can identify all of those people uh, accurately and you can create the broadest possible class of political authority that is just productive, virtuous citizens who will not engage in parasitism, um, you will get a system that's more productive and will be capable of out, out, out competing other systems, out producing other systems economically if you want. I think it's uh, equivalent to soil health. But I, I, I'll leave it there. Yeah, to, I, I, I want to I I just jump extend here. one thing on that is um, I think to do that, I think that naturally occurs in a system in which um, economics is the prime mover, not politics. And this is where I think Bitcoin fundamentally changes the game. And it's different to anything that's come before it. Like, th this is why I sort of say, like, Bitcoin doesn't break all the models, just all the models. It breaks all the cycles. Like, it, it, it is fundamentally different to what came before because it does create an economic bound in which political power can't be amassed uh, or, or it can't be. So, so one of the problems we have at the moment is, like, you can uh, amass economic power and then you can maintain it through political power and then you can concentrate political power and you sort of get this uh uh non-virtuous uh viral loop right like so so it kind of um compounds on itself whereas on a bitcoin stand you can't do that because you can't create political power to maintain uh economic power and as such you know there's there's a there's a natural bound or there's a natural accountability so i think what ends up happening on a Bitcoin standard is we don't need to focus on um, creating some political model to enfranchise the most productive. It's that we get the fuck out of the way and the most productive enfranchise themselves because they are the most productive, they are the most functional, they are the most competent, etc., etc. So they, they naturally rise up to the top and they can not only keep their wealth, but they can compound it. Um, and that's where they become, you know, natural elites, sort of kings, etc., etc. Like... So, so that's that's kind of I think we need to separate. Like, I, I'm kind of working on this new th idea, which is Bitcoin doesn't just separate money and state, but Bitcoin separates politics and economics, and and they're two different things, and they're on two different sides of the spectrum. You want to take that one, Paulie? Uh, yeah, I'll, the, I'll, the I'll just I'll just say. Sure, I'll I'll just say that um, I agree with you that in a system where economics is the prime mover those people will naturally rise to the top. Um, but, you know, the foundational document of the Western democratic Republican tradition uh, is widely agreed to be the Magna Carta, which actually you could, you could argue was a formal agreement that was drawn up between uh, the class of people that you're talking about. Right. Cause I mean, like identifying these people is one thing, but, once everybody has been sort of sorted into their appropriate class, like the productive people at the top that you're talking about are going to formalize rules between each other um, in order that everything can be fair and transparent. And, you know, that's that's just politics. Um, so I, I don't think that we're going to see like an end of politics. Right. 
I think there still will be formal political systems. We won't, yeah, totally. We're not, I don't think we'll see an end to politics. I think what we'll do is we'll see um, an end to the, the, the ability to build an economic moat uh, with politics. Um, because what will happen is those who don't try and like, because the, the tendency as soon as you start to build a, an economic moat with politics is that you start to politic your way through economics and then what you do is you create these um, bureaucracies and all that sort of stuff to maintain the um, the politic and to win the politic. Whereas the competitor then, who doesn't mire himself in politics, who you know keeps it as fucking basic as possible, um, will fucking outcompete you um, and beat you economically. Like at the moment, the reason you can't beat the politic economically is because they just fucking politic their way into being able to print all the fucking money that they want. Um, and that's that's super fucking dangerous, and that's where we are at the moment. So, so again, I think Bitcoin just fundamentally fucks all of that up. Like it's a wrecking ball to every kind of model of operation, every model of cooperation, every model of governance that we've ever fucking had to date. Like it's gonna, we really have to zero to one think our way on to a Bitcoin standard, which doesn't necessarily look like what the hell we've had. So. Did you, you got to go or something, Michael? I know you're coming up on your time stop. Nah, nah, it's all it's all good. I just wanted to say it's it, just real quick, based off what Svetsky was saying. Is it's we got to reinvent civilization. That's that's what I took from that. I mean, that's where we are at. So Svetsky, I I pretty strongly disagree with the point about politics becoming less relevant when it comes to being outcompeted economically. The argument I would make there is that what Poly, Polymetis was um, saying about being able to discern who those are that have that capacity to be a king inside of them. The man who is the highest king is going to be the man who can discern those people best and then also help the most number of people possible grow into that more strongly, as well as take care of the class of people that doesn't have that in them to maintain their loyalty by taking good care of them even though like they're not going to be that highly productive class, right? Versus just taking advantage of them. So when push comes to shove, that person who is the best suited to be a king, kind of going back to the beginning of the conversation, is actually slightly irrational. Like like you think about like uh, mm-hmm. like 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 well, just, what, uh, let me yeah. let me finish let me finish let me finish. Okay. So you think about like boot camp. So in boot camp, you get all these people there who are being trained. And when you got somebody who's training, they think their limits are in a certain place. And you think their limits are beyond the place where they think their limits are. And you are helping them abolish what they think are their inherent like restrictions of capacity so that they can grow beyond those bounds. So you as the leader or the teacher are making them stretch beyond their current belief of what is possible by believing in them more than they believe in themselves. And that is the nature of a true king, is you carry that belief to a semi-irrational nature that makes even those who don't have that capacity to live that way around you begin to ascend into it because you're creating it inside of them. Yeah, but the people you're measuring are the ones who came to the boot camp. So the thing is, you know, the the the, the part you're missing here is the fact that not everyone's going to come to the fucking boot camp. So, um, like, 
you, you can't save everyone, number one. You can't help everyone. And I think a more functional kingdom is to not try and use the useless people, nor to try and save them, is you just fucking build a wall and keep them out. Um, and they'll very quickly learn to either build their own environment um, or, uh, you know, save the rest of us some fucking oxygen. So, like, I'm way more harsh on this shit, but, you know, like, honestly, I've had enough of fucking trying to help everyone. Um, And, you know, like, for me, the lemmings are basically as much of an enemy as the parasites are. And it's like, I just want fucking nothing to do with them. And I'm, I'm not interested in using them or trampling on them. I'm more interested in fucking blocking them um, from having anything to fucking do with me. Yeah, so I want to draw a really strong distinction between the useless and those who don't have the capacity to kind of carry authority. Because there's a difference between people who don't have that nature of kings who do that well of like creating order as a steward of the world around them versus those who actually are antagonistic and destructive of the world. Because there are two different classes of people. The useless class of people needs to truly be excluded because they're just a cancer to whatever you're trying to build that are going to just destroy it and suck the life out of it. But there are people who aren't necessarily like capable for whatever reason to be a part of that politic in the positive sense structure where politics is those systems of agreements like the Magna Carta that pull the world together to be more orderly. It's just not what they're good at, but they still have valuable contributions to society living within whatever their realm is. Of course. So they can be the tradesman, they can be the artisan, they can do whatever the fuck they want. doesn't mean they need to be involved. Like, the the less people that are involved in politics, the better. Like, that's, that's, you know, fundamentally speaking, this is why I think, again, Bitcoin just makes politics, it takes the teeth out of politics. So then politics becomes like a fucking, you know, more like a, you know, something that the the king and the larger private landowners think about more so than anything else. And then, um, you know, everybody else, you know, lives within a economic framework in which you're rewarded for producing more. Um, and that's it. Like, so it's just, I think, you know, Bitcoin will just simplify a whole lot of this fucking crap because it just, a lot of the machinations that occur through politicking um, just obfuscate, confuse, and um, stand in the way of just raw, natural, organic human action, um, which is, you know, really the, the basis of all prosperity anyway. So, um, so I don't know. I, I just think we need to strip back a lot of the stuff that we had to build in the absence of something like Bitcoin, right? So, so all of this stuff that came before occurred as we were figuring shit out um, and we never really had something like bitcoin that had a fixed fucking bound that we couldn't fuck with um so i think that's like fundamentally different i've got a bit of a thought on the matter so it, it's it seems to me that being a king would be possibly the most difficult job you could possibly you could take on so I think to be a true king, you need to be able to inspire the most, the brigands, the rogues, the most uh, despotic amongst your uh, your kingdom. You need to inspire them to be better, to grow themselves, to contribute. And I mean, if they don't, then you just kill them off. But you know, you, you need to exhibit an ideal that is. 
that the people you govern will want to strive to. Otherwise, you'll have guards and, and um, law enforcers that will exercise their own will on the populace, and then you get an unhappy populace, and then you get an uprising and your ass gets overthrown. So it, it seems to me that separate from the monetary system, having a good monetary system, I think is an absolute requirement because if you got bad money, then you're just going to incentivize bad morals. But even with good money, you're going to have people that draw the short end of the stick and they are going to be unhappy. So how do you inspire people to elevate themselves, to strive to be better, to strive towards the ideal that you exhibit. I, I think that would be crucial to a long-lasting kingdom, and it may be easy to, to inspire those people at the beginning of your reign, but as your kingdom progresses and once you die off, how, how do you ensure that, uh, other than raising a good son, I mean, that doesn't always work, though. So how do you ensure that that culture, that 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 desire to strive towards the greater good to be you know to be good to be just to be true to to value the beautiful how do you instill that into the most common person within your kingdom so that they will uphold that natural order that natural beauty how how is that accomplished i don't know if it's ever been accomplished in history for more than a short period of time but it well, seems like that would be paramount Steve Jobs is a great example of someone who instilled, um, you know, that into a fucking company that is still producing shit beyond his death. Now, mind you, you know, Apple has kind of, you know, fallen from grace uh, in, in, in much that way. But Steve Jobs is a great example of someone whose sheer will projected through that and he set the tone for the culture, for the, for the mission, for the vision and all that sort of stuff. So, so he's, a, he's an archetype, I think, of someone who would be, um, the kind of king that uh, operates in, in the future. So it's like, now, he, he did that through vision, through character, to, through personality and all that sort of stuff, but within the context of uh, economic consequence, which was, you know, when, when he came back into Apple, he had to fucking make deep cuts. He cut out all the fucking product lines, blah, 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 blah. And he saved the fucking company. And then, you know, they managed to continue and subsist and then grow and then become the fucking best. So I think it's a mixture of, you know, on a Bitcoin standard, the specter of economic consequence is always hanging right there next to you. And when you perform poorly, you get immediate feedback on your poor performance, which creates a mechanism where you correct much faster, you correct behavior much quicker. And I think over generations and over iterations of human society, we'll start to bake in um, faster feedback and I guess more morally aligned behavior with the existence of something like Bitcoin. And, and, and again, I think we completely underestimate what this looks like over multiple iterative uh, generations of uh societal rule now this doesn't mean it looks like the monarchies of the 15th centuries or the ancient times or any of that sort of stuff like it it may look like more of you know a, a you know a series of steve jobs type characters uh rising up and leading their particular territories and instilling a particular culture and inspiring people to become the best version of themselves etc it's like running a future territory a future city might be like running a you know a really functional company 
Um, and, and I think that's the kind of lens we should be thinking about this from. Um, and the fact that there doesn't exist some sort of authority to bail you out for poor decision making changes things in a way that we're not yet ready to comprehend. So, so I think that would be my two cents. Folks, um, I love you all. I love my wife more. Um, and she just got home. Well, tell her we love her too. So I will yes. do that. It's been really good. Absolutely. <clears throat> yeah, we're going to close this off here in the next 10 minutes. At least I am. And uh, if, I don't know if you can keep the room open, Joel, but I got to go. Okay, sounds good. Appreciate you joining, Faith. Andrew, you jumped in. You want to say something, buddy? Hey, man, yeah. Um, so one thing Alex said I really agree with is, you know, the future of these kingdoms or – uh, just better areas to live in, whatever you want to call them, I think uh, it will be a lot like a business model. And if you look at free private cities, like I'm still kind of learning about how their, their model works, but essentially it's a, it's a for-profit model where, you know, if you want to move into a free private city, you sign a contract with the city itself and they're accountable things and so are you. And so are you. So, you know, that being said, I mean, imagine, so one, one example of this that I heard, which I found interesting is, okay, if you get robbed in one of these cities, you have, you get, uh, reimbursed basically for what you got robbed for, uh, because you know, that happened on the free private city and something like that happening now. I mean, imagine I'm from Los Angeles. I can't imagine, you know, if I got robbed, the government just gives me whatever I got robbed for. So Kind of where my mind goes is I'm curious to hear if you guys have any more, you know, the esoteric conversations are great and they're important, but as far as tangible ideas that we can use to implement these things in the real world, curious to hear if you have any thoughts. And I'll end on this. For me, I think there are basically three options for creating free societies now. There's either, you know, exit and build. So just go somewhere, find land, claim land middle of nowhere, whatever, get a big group there. There's uh, a bloody revolution, which is the least preferable for obvious reasons. And then there's the free private city option, which is basically making contractual agreements with governments to have uh, more or less free areas. So what are your thoughts? I don't think that'll work unless you have a sly roundabout way of pulling it off. Because their economic incentive and their power incentive is to not allow such to happen. I think that's naive to think that freedom is just going to be allowed to exist underneath this current totalitarian onslaught. What do you think, Svetsky? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a spectrum. Like, if the government's broke enough and incompetent enough and um, the people are dying of starvation enough and they can't, you know, manage their own territory and there's you know, the area that you're picking up doesn't have many resources, etc. Like it's, 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 it's a spectrum. Like, you know, that, that, that goal would be way harder to do in the America, in America, for example, but, but you go to a shithole like Macedonia, like, um, where my parents are originally from, man, I reckon, you know, in the next 10 years, we could go there with a few Bitcoiners, you know, put a couple of Bitcoin between each other and buy half the fucking country. Um, and probably with a militia of fucking three people with, you know, over on their government, like, Literally, like some of these crony states are so fucking broken and backwards, it's not even funny. So, I think I think that's a that's a spectrum. Um, I mean, 
the, the, the piece that I would most caution on is like, well, not caution. I, I think it's a, none of these things are ever a silver bullet. They're all just like a series of lead bullets and it's a, it's a process. Um, and we, you know, we, we are going to get there over time. Um, you know, what you're doing, Joel, is one avenue. What three private cities are attempting to do is another avenue. Um, the other avenue of like waiting, you know, until Bitcoin is, you know, worth enough um, is another avenue, like aligning with people like, for example, Bukele is whatever people think about him. Like, you know, it makes sense to, you know, like do, Chuck and Max Kaiser and Stacey, what they're doing is they're positioning themselves to be of use to the person in power. So that's another strategy. doesn't mean any of them are exactly right or exactly wrong. They're all going to have their trade-offs. But, um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a transition there, and I don't think any one of them are perfect. So it's just like you've got to pick the one for where you want to be. Go ahead, Decentralized. David, I saw you unmute unmuted your mic do you have any thoughts on this all right while we're waiting for him um oh do you do you remute it do you got something you want to say it seems like you found your mic no um Svetsky, see in my opinion the threat model there so you just to use the example of macedonia is not macedonia it's the global power structure and you can defend yourself against that smaller state that you bribed or whatever, but how do you, when doing it outright like that, with the current political spectrum of the world, defend yourself against nations that are willing to bomb other nations and assassinate national leaders just to ma maintain their global power, right? Yeah. Like, it, and not just that, I mean, we've got other power dynamics in place too. <laughs> Go ahead. You need to grease some fucking palms, man. Like, I don't know. that. That's why I don't have an answer. And that's exactly why I'm not doing it. Otherwise, I'd go and do it now. But um, I think, like, that kind of game starts to be, like, particularly during a transition, is a super high risk and super high reward game. Because maybe you can strike a fucking deal. Like, for example, let's use Macedonia as another example. It basically subsists off EU handouts at the moment, right? So, and the EU just hands out whatever they fucking give them, you know, some charity here and there, and the dumb motherfuckers, you know, subsist. Now, you could potentially, you know, structure a deal to say, hey, you know, we're going to restructure it, we're going to do this, and we're going to, you know, pay this person off for this and this and this. And it's like, it's all tenuous, but, um, you know, like there is definitely for the right actor and operator or for the right team of operators they could pull fucking something off. Um, it's possible. It doesn't mean that I'm going to go and fucking do it, but Hey man, like that, that's a, that's a, that's a vector, which has its own, you know, potential attack vectors anyway. So I think that could work in the short term. Sorry to cut you off, but I think that could work in the short term, but you got to remember people, people die and the deals that their predecessors made, they may not uphold or they may raise the stakes or whatever it is. So it, it seems that a society like that might need some sort of force multiplier that, that prevents these larger systems from trying to encroach on them. I have no idea how that will take shape. I don't know what it will be, but as it stands, even if you took over 
a small country, you could still be absolutely obliterated if the deal falls through or whoever you made the deal with, if they die and their predecessor takes over and decides that they would rather have your land and your resources rather than your cooperation. So it, it is it is complex, but thinking in the long term, I don't know how you mitigate those potential disasters. Because yeah, we have long, so many examples time. of that. Right. I mean, we got the Belt and Road Initiative coming out of China where they're taking advantage of these weaker systems across the world. We've got like Gaddafi would be another story or United Fruit Company. Like it's not that simple to just kind of strike a deal somewhere and think that the global power is not going to just find a way to take advantage of you. But like there is hope. I mean, there is extra governmental entities that are doing this and surviving, Andrew. Like the ones that are leaning most towards this already, I would argue, are the cartels. I mean, some of the cartels here in North America, they got 100,000 employees. They got entire intelligence divisions. They got special forces divisions. They have, it's not just drugs. I mean, they have entire business networks. They have entire networks of politicians who are in their pocket through either bribery or blackmail. They have entire networks of local communities where they've done hearts and minds campaigns, where they have loyalty, where they don't get turned in for anything they do. So they're essentially like these sovereign nations that are working across international borders. So they're like these amorphous entities that there's no attack service because nobody really knows where they are as far as the larger governmental entities to try to find them and stop them. They just are this kind of invisible, impenetrable like Hydra, essentially. But it's still a connected authority structure that's all flowing underneath of a coherent agenda. If somebody wants to try to have some sort of defensible freedom, that's probably the best model we have to try to replicate in a survivable manner because it is the one thing that's working in this depth of adversarial environment. So what you're saying is we need to start moving cocaine. Negative. <laughs> Take over the cartels if you can. <laughs> I mean, look, I, I to your point about cartels, so here's an interesting thing. You've got fucking Albania next to next door to fucking shithole Macedonia, right? And that's got some of the, you know, biggest gangsters in um in Europe. So it's like, could you form deals with motherfuckers like that to, you know, create um, a way to, you know, have short-term protection, et cetera. Now that, you know, has probably some long-term costs, et cetera. But like, th this is what I mean. It's like, it's not a clean path. Um, and to, to Tizzy's earlier question about like the, the medium to long-term uh, sustainability of that, I think one country starting to do that, I actually think um, creates a domino effect of others starting to potentially do something similar and creating like a, a network between them. So I actually think that, is one of those like um, change the game theory type moves that would really like um, shift the shift the chessboard, I guess. Um, and I mean, we're also doing. Remember, we're also doing this against the backdrop of uh, an incompetent fucking globalist set of you know retarded lizards who are basically losing control of everything. Um, and in their panic, you know, they're making more and more and more mistakes. Um, and as they make more mistakes, they get more desperate. And as they get more desperate, they make more mistakes. So, so they're up shit creek without a fucking paddle. Um, and they're on entirely borrowed time. Like, I mean, they've, they've got two bullets left, um, Debt Jubilee and UBI. Um, but, you know, that, that's like sort of beyond that, they're completely fucked. Um, so, you know, we, we, we sort of 
you know, we've, we've got um, the rising force behind us, uh, whereas they've got the, the drowning force behind them. So I would also just layer that in there. I would argue you're thinking too small trying to pay a cartel. I think we can learn from them as far as what we're trying to build with our meshedels or business networks. Um, but I think I'd also just kind of chide not to misunder, like misunderstand or underestimate the depth of misinformation out there or deception that takes place in our world today when it comes to the domino effects, Vetsky. Cause I think we are on the rise, but like we're talking about power structures that are willing to bomb their own nations in order to frame other entities and to create these entire public image things or like don't discount the reach at which they're willing to play the long game in trying to create what they always do of getting in front of the network effects of these emergent movements by creating a false entity that looks like the first domino in order for them to thwart the direction of the stream, right? This is something that's happened many times and they're very, very good at doing it. And it'd be really easy for that to be something that we end up jumping into and supporting the wrong thing. Absolutely. It, totally. These people have been, they've been operating in this way for many, many, many decades. And it, it seems that they will have learned a thing or two over those years. And it, to me, at least, it seems that it's been too easy to read through the noise of their misinformation for the signal of what they're trying to do. And that concerns me in that these are old hands. These are, these are people that have experience. They've been manipulating governments and, and whatever else for decades, hundreds of years, possibly. And it seems that, you know, what they show you with their left hand may not be what they are actually moving toward. It, I just, I worry about movements being co-opted and misinformation being taken for true signal even on our side it um yeah these people i don't i don't know if they should be underestimated it seems like they're flailing but i think we should be a little bit guarded against that i agree keeping our guard up makes sense i mean i, I give them less credit um than probably you guys do i think also um the 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 complex nature of the world um means that as much as you know lizards want to plan things in the background um you know inevitably things backfire um and and it's not like some things backfire but basically everything backfires um you you can't you can't control and direct complex systems like i'm pretty convinced on that um i think they you know can channel uh, elements but then that has uh, other externalities that they can't plan for um, and it blows up in different sort of ways um, and then also you got the fact that um, most of the old guard is dying anyway um, and the new guard kind of has grown up in a in a slightly different environment so, so they might be easier to uh, you know basically they're not they're not as uh, tied to the the old guard or they're not as tied to the old system as the old guard are, sorry. Um, so as a result, they, they would, through the sheer force of self-preservation, be willing to jump ship sooner. Um, and I think that's an advantage on our side. But again, that the, notwithstanding what I just said, like, we should definitely keep our fucking guard up and think about this. And that's why, like, me personally, I'm just not making any quick moves. Um, 
I know me personally at a personal level as much as I talk about this stuff, basically I'm watching more than anything right now because there is no clear direction. Um, I don't know what the fuck to do. Yeah, I'm basically in the same situation. Like I had El Salvador is very tempting, but uh, I definitely have my guard up on that. Um, at the end of the day, man, what it really like where I'm at is I just want to surround myself with like men, basically like people who care enough about freedom uh, and are willing to base just die for it, really. And uh, no matter what model you use at the end of the day you know all governments are is just monopolies on force and uh cartels i mean you know you're talking about paying off a cartel it depends which cartel but uh like the concept of a cartel is kind of interesting because it's it's a group of men other than the government who keep the government in check in some ways because they have the ability to use force so I mean, I don't want to, you know, without like saying too much on Twitter or anything, that's basically where I'm at. It's just very frustrating living in a world where men don't give a flying fuck at all about any of their freedoms being taken away and they'll throw a mask on their, you know, three-year-old kid just to not piss anyone off. Yeah, I'm totally with you. I think the surrounding myself, surrounding ourselves with good people is, um, is probably the best short-term move um, and then waiting it out you know, and figuring out what to do next is the next move. I mean, the only thing I'll disagree with you on is like, um, I want to surround myself with hot women, but, um, I mean, if you like men, sure. Um, but I'll stick with the chicks. <laughs> I would rather build I'll a network of men that not, <laughs> that not only values freedom, but don't value their own personal freedom at the expense of another's, unless that be an enemy or something like that. I would rather surround myself uh, or create a network with men that understand responsibility and are willing to bear that responsibility in order to create a free society that their children and their children's children may live in. Totally. Totally. I think that, that what you just mentioned there... We just mentioned there about like freedom and responsibility. Like I've been toying with this idea now for, for a little while is like you kind of got freedom on one end. And Viktor Frankl talks about this is like he says, you know, America should have had like a statue of liberty on one on the East Coast and then a statue of responsibility on the West Coast, like to balance it out. Um, and I think that's such a beautiful way to think about it is that and, and, and I was actually thinking of a word that kind of combines freedom and responsibility. And like the best thing I could think of was independence. Um, you know, it's a, it's like an interesting concept. It's like, you know, you know, you can be free, but through responsibility, you set your own bounds and limits. Um, and then, you know, as a result, you sort of become independent. So anyway, I don't know. I think that's such a beautiful, um, beautiful note. And on that note, I'm going to leave because I'm fucking hungry and I want to eat and I've been talking for five hours now. Yeah. I got to head out to you. Peace guys. Yeah, my dinner's waiting to. Thanks, Mike, for hosting this. Untapped. Love you, bro. Um, belligerent, Andrew, David, Tizzy, everyone um, for listening. Take care. See you guys next time. Hey, Spetsky, thanks for coming. Thank you, everyone. That was awesome. Appreciate y'all. We'll do it again. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's been Yeah, Tizzy, been man. <clears throat> Tizzy, man, we've been getting on these for a while now, and they've been always good. So love to have you, brother.
Yeah, man, I'm enjoying it. I appreciate it. Joel, you guys have a good night. Take care, everyone. I'm, I'm, I'm closing the room now.